0: welcome back to the stronger by science podcast it's been a very long wait but we are finally back for a new season of real hard-hitting evidence-based scientific fitness content uh this is the one and only official stronger by science podcast uh there were some fireside chats in recent weeks um Historically they've been our worst rated shows. We've gotten a lot of negative feedback. This little string was no exception. A lot of people saying that they generally just lacked the structure and direction that you would expect from a well hosted show. But I'm glad to say that I'm back as the special temporary primary host for this season of the show. Uh, But Greg will be joining me as uh the permanent guest co-host for now at this point in time so greg thank you for joining me for another season
1: yeah thanks for having me back on and as far as the fireside chats go you know i I understand that when it comes to media some people just like uh things to be spoon-fed to them they're kind of they're kind of looking for lowest common denominator type content like there's a reason big bang theory was the number one show in america for a long time and not everyone appreciates more niche indie artistic projects like the like the Fireside Chat series. But you know it's it's a big world takes all types, and uh, yeah, it's it's good to be back. Yeah,
0: I think sometimes people think that they're tapping into some kind of niche, you know, kind of content area, and a lot of times it just falls flat. You know, it just doesn't have the juice that you would expect. Uh, but nonetheless, we're back to get to uh, back to the science. You know, back back to what people are here for. So. Uh, as always, if you like the show, be sure to like, rate, and subscribe wherever you get it. Uh, if you want to get more information about the newest research in exercise and nutrition, be sure to join our newsletter by going to strongerbyscience.com slash newsletter. If you're looking for a one-on-one virtual coach, be sure to check out strongerbyscience.com slash coaching. We've got a very talented team of coaches. If you want to get a little discount on your dietary supplements, Head over to BulkSupplements.com and use our discount code. The code is SBSPOD, and that'll get you a 5% discount off of your entire order. Uh, Of course, you could further support us by checking out the Mass Research Review, which is published every single month, or you could check out Macrofactor, which is the diet app that we co-developed, and it does come with a free trial, so you have an opportunity to test it out and see if you like it before you make any kind of financial commitment to it um we've got two really nice segments planned for today's episode but before we get into that we have some announcements and then uh just kind of a fun little news article that i came across for a brief discussion but first um we're back for a new season i have notes here because i'm what you would call a very stupid person and i would not remember this without notes uh we are going to have a slight change coming up in the recording schedule uh we didn't want to just like blindside people with it and pull the rug out and leave people um you know wondering where the podcast is we currently release episodes on thursday and we put up you know the audio we put up the full youtube video all that stuff we're going to change some things behind the scenes which is going to impact when episodes come out and exactly how they come out so at some point in the near future there's going to be a shift in the release schedule We're still going to be recording every single week from now uh, for the foreseeable future. But there is going to be a week in the near future where it seems like the episode is coming late. And that's because we're switching from a very straightforward Thursday release to uh, a different kind of release pattern. So the full episode, basically the way it's going to happen is moving forward on Wednesdays, we are going to release one of our segments on our YouTube channel as a standalone video And what we're trying to do is put some of these shorter segments out because some people very understandably say hey we love your show it's some of the best content i've ever seen in really any genre of content but the episodes are long you know if if you could kind of give me the bite-sized clips it would be helpful so on wednesday we're going to release a segment on youtube um, and we're going to be including more visual elements kind of showing images and stuff on the screen on friday we're going to release another segment on youtube and then that following Monday is when you're going to get the full podcast episode, wherever you get podcasts, and also the full episode will be uploaded to YouTube. So that's the approach we're going to be taking. And like I said, there's going to be one week there where there's kind of a, a bit of a, a gap where you have to wait a little bit longer for the full episode. We tried to petition to make some very straightforward changes to the Gregorian calendar, and I think we made a good pitch, given that you are one of the Gregs, and there aren't that many. We thought we might have some special claim to that type of authority, um, but it really got nowhere. Uh, you know, our appeals didn't really go through. So instead of changing the entire Gregorian calendar, we've just decided to have a slightly slower release one week, right? Yes, sir. Okay, so with that out of the way, um, I came across a uh an article here i'm going to link it in the show notes it it was on science.org and it was about some pretty cool legislation that came out uh, or i don't know if it's legislation it was kind of a a government decision that that was uh dictated and released but basically uh the the united states government the executive branch uh put out a statement indicating that they're going to be requiring immediate public access to all u.s funded research papers by 2025. Now, in terms of the implement, implementation details, I don't know them, okay? But this is a nice, if nothing else, a nice gesture, a move toward a more open science world where uh, people who are interested in research will have greater access to that research without it being uh, hidden behind paywalls. So, it's kind of a longer-term goal. Like I said, the 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 announcement indicated that by 2025, uh, the U.S. government is going to say, hey, if we funded the research,
1: it's got to be open access. Um, there's going to be a lot of ways. And, that- and I'll note that's that's not like a, a new and radical move. Right. Um, I believe the EU did something similar in 2018. And as of like 2020, 2021, thereabouts. uh publicly funded research by bodies in the eu uh have to be publicly available uh on, on print so really it's uh you know th- this isn't a, a brand new move in this area it's just the the u.s joining what the eu is already doing as as far as i'm aware
0: yeah but but it, it's really nice because you know in many cases those articles will be kept behind a paywall for extended periods of time uh, and so they're they're trying to make sure that people have access to that information sooner rather than later, which is a really positive thing. But of course, it wouldn't be stronger by science without a little bit of snark. Uh, in reading this article, I found some very hilarious clip, like little quotes that I had to comment on. Uh, so <laughs> one of the things that it said, uh, many commercial publishers and nonprofit, sci- nonprofit scientific societies have long fought to maintain a one-year embargo, basically keeping stuff behind a paywall for at least a year, uh, saying that it's critical to protecting subscription revenues that cover editing and production costs and fund society activities. Uh, to me, my opinion is that that's totally bullshit. Uh, the The editing and production costs are, are very, very tiny. Um, the And the argument like, well, this is bad because it hurts our publishing revenue. Uh, I understand why that would be important to a for-profit publisher, but for everybody else, uh, it, it seems more like a, a hindrance to disseminating research than anything else. So I understand why the people who are uh, keeping the stuff behind paywalls really like paywalls, but uh, to act like that, some kind of act for the, the common good is a bit of a stretch.
1: Yeah, I mean, also, like the, the grift itself is incredible because essentially like what what costs money in this process uh you need funds to actually like buy equipment pay subjects you know buy uh like certain chemicals you'll need for analyses whatever um so if it's publicly funded research like that's being paid for by tax dollars especially if the research is being done at like an r1 public institution you know, those salaries are are getting paid, uh, like there are federal subsidies and also like state tax dollars are going to like cover the salaries of everyone doing the research. And then what does the journal do? Uh, like what, uh, capital inputs do they have in the process? Basically none. Like they, they've got a copy editor and a web manager that just uploads the PDF to a website and that's about it. Um, and then you know they they reap all of the profits from the system so you know all all of like probably 98% of the costs are being covered by the public already uh so it's it's uh you know public input and then in terms of extracting value from the system it's all just like private companies just j- just doing rent seeking behavior to yeah. to suck all of that up um so yeah like it it doesn't it never made sense for it to be paywalled in the first place. And then two, this isn't going to affect their business models because, like, a lot of the research is still privately funded, and so it wouldn't be subject to these new regulations. And, like, the the journals make virtually 100% of their income from, like, university library subscriptions to their journals, which they kind of bundle and, you know, sell access to you know, if you're a publisher with 300 journals, you kind of bundle that all together and a library pays subscription access to all of those. A minority of the studies in across all of those journals will be publicly funded. So, you know, if you're, if you're a school, you basically have to pay for, for access. Like you have to buy these subscriptions because the scientists doing research at your institution, they need to be able to keep up with what's going on in their field. And so, you know, essentially like, you know, 70% of the work in a field may have been paywalled before, and now like sixty-four percent will still be paywalled. And those those schools will still have to pay for access to all of the same journals as before. So, you know, if if it affects the publisher's bottom lines at all, it will be a, a pretty minimal effect. Like I said, the, the EU put in similar regulations uh a few years ago, and the profits for all of these scientific publishers has still been increasing. So, yeah, they're they're just crying over spilt milk. Yeah,
0: it's also kind of funny because it's, it's almost like, hey, you know, if you guys do this, how are we going to ensure the absolute highest quality copy editing? And it's like, dude, we've read enough journals to say, like, dude, the number of times you run into a figure that is so poorly made that it's uninterpretable. Mm-hmm. The number of times you see just blatant errors where it's like, hey, it's is this just the same paragraph pasted twice? Mm -hmm. Like if they're paying, like if, if they're putting a substantial amount of money and effort into that, it's, it's not even doing that well on the copy editing front. Yeah. And then for everything else, all of the really labor intensive resource intensive stuff is totally outsourced for free. Yeah. You know, so it's difficult for me to get too upset on behalf of the publishers here. Uh, Another quote that I found really hilarious, uh, I'm not going to say, like, call out the person by name with the quote, but they they were talking to someone who was speaking kind of like on behalf of publishers, and uh, it said they support a, a transition to immediate public access, but they criticized the new policy, and the quote was, we would have preferred to chart our own course to open access without a government mandate. Uh now, people have been clamoring about the insane structure of this industry for a very long time. And to me, this this kind of sounds like someone who's been evading their taxes for many years mm-hmm. and has gotten like 25 stern letters in the mail saying like, dude, you have to pay your taxes and just ignores all of them, then gets arrested for tax evasion is like, dude, that's so aggressive. I. I really wish you would have let me sort this out on my own, because I, <laughs> I very much planned on promptly repaying all that. Yeah. It's like, you've had a million chances to actually be proactive here. So yeah, the mandate's happening. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, th- that article, I, I found it to be a, a bit funny, but also it's a really promising... It's not going to completely, like you said, change the face of academic publishing. Uh, unfortunately. But it is a step toward a better direction. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So, so ultimately good stuff and, you know, yielded some, some nice fun quotes in the process. I agree. You looked like you were about to say something very insightful.
1: Uh, yeah. So I, I just wanted to comment slightly more on like the, the business model of publishing. Cause I, I think like people who haven't even like dipped their toes in academia or, or thought about this too much. Uh, might hear this and be like, oh, like this, this seems bad. Like these, these people are uh, excited about further regulations of private business. And like, I, I can understand that to some extent from like an uh, in, in ideological perspective, but I, I think it makes the most sense to think of academic publishing like a utility, uh, but like a, a utility that is mostly unregulated. So you know just imagine you live in a place where there's a single electricity provider um you, and let's say you live in the south and you've got to pay for air conditioning otherwise where you live is essentially uninhabitable like no one no one lived in the south before air conditioning <laughs> existed yeah uh, for good reason um so you know like you you don't strictly have to pay for it, but like you basically have to. Yeah. Uh, and the way that like electricity utilities are regulated is, um, you know, saying that they can charge enough to make a profit, but it's like somewhat constrained. Essentially, like we have Duke energy here and they can't just say like, oh yeah, we're going to increase our rates eightfold, even though our costs haven't increased and you have to pay for it. So like, whatever, fuck you. Um, but that, that's like basically how publishing works because the journals themselves and the content in the journals is essentially a, a utility. Like it's it's the raw materials that scientists need to have access to to keep up with their field, know what's going on, uh, understand what the next steps are when they're generating hypotheses, designing studies, like they need access to that. But, you know, the the amounts that journals can charge is completely unregulated. So they they kind of have academic institutions in a vice grip where they where they can essentially say we can charge whatever we want for access to our journals and you have to pay it. Cuz if you don't like no good researcher is going to want to come to your school because they either won't have access to the stuff going on in their field or they'll have to like pay out of pocket just to access all of the journals that publish stuff in their field, which if you're subscribing one journal at a time for an individual, like that, that would be several thousand dollars a year. Yeah. Um, so like schools effectively are forced to pay. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's like a utility in that, in that manner, except like they're holding all the cards. So, you know, this, this slight tweak in policy to make a little bit more, uh research publicly available right away as soon as it's published when it's being funded by public funds no less um you know in, in terms of the extent to which i think publishing should be regulated <laughs> this is <laughs> this is such a a tiny step in the right direction like it's it's not going to blow up their spot um yeah that's yeah and what i wanted to say along those lines i mean the argument
0: for uh widely available access uh, to that research is is very straightforward. Uh, it, it's not like asking for a handout. It's like, you know, you think about the work that gets done on publicly funded grants by researchers uh, and their staff at publicly funded universities. Uh, you know, the people that are gaining access to this research have already paid for it. Yeah. Uh, and what the publishers would prefer, is that the public funds the materials for the study, the public funds the staff for the study, the public funds the infrastructure for the university, and then the publicly funded libraries at those universities have to buy the research again. Yeah, And then only people who are currently affiliated with those institutions actually can access it. Yeah, And so everyone else is like, I funded this research in like seven different ways. Yeah, they are they're, they're paying f- get it.
1: They're paying for one thing three times that they still don't have access to. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, this is not like some
0: radical give everything free to everybody. It's like, dude, I bought this three
1: times. Yeah. Can I see it? <laughs> yeah. P- pub- publishing is such a grift. Yeah, whatever.
0: All right. So, now let's move on to one of our two uh more science-focused segments here. Uh, we're going to start out with your segment, Greg, which is on stretching and calf growth.
1: Yes, yes. Um, all right. So i I would have maybe liked a different lead in, which is totally fine. I was going to start with a with a rhetorical question in an attempt to make this somewhat more conversational. Sure. I was going to say, Eric, what what muscle group or muscle groups? Do people complain about the most saying, odds, oh, it's, it's so hard to grow this particular muscle group? Certainly calves. All right. I would say the same thing. So isn't it interesting that maybe we have one weird trick for massive calf growth? Uh, not really. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm talking about a study that was published recently from Warnicke and colleagues. The title is, Influence of Long-Lasting Static Stretching on Maximal Strength, Muscle Thickness, and Flexibility and for this segment, I'm I'm only going to be talking about the the muscle thickness bit. Um, you know, I i think most people realize that stretching a muscle improves flexibility over time. Eh, not really worth getting into. But the the hypertrophy findings were were pretty interesting. Um and we we posted about this study on the Stronger by Science Instagram a couple weeks ago. Uh check out the Instagram if you haven't already. And uh the, the post got a lot of engagement and also a lot of questions um, suggesting that I think some people didn't fully understand why we were why we were talking about this study in the first place. Um, so I, I wanted to do this segment for the podcast, both just to talk through the study and the results of the study more, but also, I think it's a very useful study for helping us learn learn more about the process of accruing scientific knowledge over time. Because studies don't just exist in a vacuum, you know, and I think most, most consumers of information are interested in science for the purpose of giving answers of how should I train to maximize gains. But generally there's a fairly long process getting you to that point. Of trying to figure out not just works best, like not just what works best, but why it works better than other alternatives, like understanding mechanisms which can then be used to guide future research to actually optimize training. Um So reading between the lines were were people
0: basically saying like that this is this has low ecological validity, like it's not directly applicable?
1: Well, they they were basically saying like, oh well, resistance training has to be more effective than stretching for calf growth so like why should i care in the first place okay yeah Yeah. uh so yeah let's um let's kind of trace trace the history that brings us to this study um to discuss why it's important so uh just as background we've known for a long time that training through a full range of motion uh, tends to cause more muscle growth than training through a partial range of motion uh, the classic study that people tend to cite to to support this point is by Bloomquist and colleagues, uh, but there there have been plenty more studies that that have been published in the intervening years. Uh, the the Bloomquist study was from either 2011 or 2013, I believe, uh, and in that study they compared the effects of basically quarter squats, so squatting to about 60 degrees of knee flexion, versus uh, parallel squats so squatting to about 120 degrees of knee flexion uh, so you you can see if you're watching this on youtube what those ranges of motion looked like in in the graphic that we're going to put on screen uh so cool the, image too it looks like the person's wearing like one of those spider-man suits it, it is yeah it, it looks like a skeleton in a mocap suit yeah. so high tech and spooky cool um so you know subjects trained through these two different ranges of motion uh, for 12 weeks following the same training program and basically they found that the the group doing parallel squats experienced way more quad growth than the group doing shallow squats uh and also if you're watching on youtube we'll we'll flash these results up here but you know for, for the most part they measured um they measured quadriceps cross-sectional area so so just cross-sectional area of all of the muscle mass on the front of the thigh at uh, six different points, so some some more proximal points closer to the hip, down to more distal points closer to the knee. And what you saw was at basically all points, uh, the the deep squat group uh, experienced increases in muscle cross-sectional area of like four to seven percent in that pretty tight range. The shallow squat group did see some pretty decent hypertrophy at just the more proximal regions, uh, so closer to the hip. Um, but then for for the distal regions, they saw no changes in quad size or even slight decreases. So overall, the the deep squat group uh, just saw way better quad gains than the shallow squat group. However, uh, with with a type of study like that, it's difficult to isolate variables because you could say, oh, hey. Uh you know, maybe the difference we're seeing here is due to the fact that the total range of motion uh was different, so the deep squat group was training through twice as much total knee flexion as the shallow squat group, or you could say it's because the mu- the the muscle links being trained were different, so not only was the range total range of motion different, but the deep squat group. As they were going down, they were training the quads at longer muscle lengths, longer total muscle lengths than the shallow squat group. So, is it the muscle lengths that matter, or is it the total range of motion? It's hard to say just from the Bloomquist study and from eh, probably the first half dozen studies that were looking at this question. So, uh, more recently, there have been a few studies that help uh, disambiguate this a little bit further. So, um, I, I'm going to talk about a study. F- from Pedrosa and colleagues that will be linked in the show notes, but there there have been uh, some some studies illustrating a similar point by Sato and colleagues and uh, Mayo and colleagues M A E O I believe, um, but yeah the the study by Pedrosa was the first that I think really helps uh, disambiguate that effect. Is it the muscle links being trained or is it the total range of motion? So in in the study by Pedrosa. Uh, there were five groups, uh, one of the groups, and all of them were training knee extensions over 12 weeks. Uh, one of the groups trained through a full range of motion, which they defined as from 100 degrees of knee flexion to 30 degrees of knee flexion. So they they basically had a, a custom-built knee extension machine rigged up where subjects didn't lock out all the way at the top. I think to kind of maintain muscle tension in all of the groups, not totally sure, But basically, 100 to 30 degrees of knee flexion was full range of motion in this group. Then they had an initial range of motion group, which only trained from 100 to 65 degrees of knee flexion, so only training at relatively long muscle lengths, so not doing the top part of the range of motion. Then they had a final range of motion group, which only trained from 65 to 30 degrees of knee flexion, so same total range of motion as the initial range of motion group, 35 degrees of total uh, uh, knee, knee flexion range of motion, um, but they were only training at short muscle lengths. Then there was a varied range of motion group where essentially they would do half of their training with partials at long muscle lengths and half of their training with partials at short muscle lengths and a control group. Uh, and there there were a lot of outcomes in this study, so there were Five groups they looked at two different muscles both the vastus lateralis and rectus femoris and they also assessed uh muscle cross-sectional area at four different points along the thighs so you know there there are what like somewhere around 120 discrete uh comparisons you could make in this study but overall the the trend was pretty clear um all of the groups that trained at long muscle lengths, so the initial range of motion group, the varied range of motion group, and the full range of motion group, uh, all experienced more quad growth than the final range of motion group that was only training at short muscle lengths, and and they all did better than the control group, which is what you should expect. Um, But this strongly suggests that the important factor with full range of motion outperforming partial range of motion isn't the range of motion per se. It's the fact that when compared to kind of the traditional approach of partial range of motion training, full range of motion training involves training at long muscle lengths, and that seems to be the important part. Because when you do partial range of motion training at long muscle lengths, that seems to be just as effective for hypertrophy as full range of motion training. Uh, Or if anything, maybe slightly more so. Like, uh that and that's somewhat ambiguous um but it, at minimum it seems like partial range of motion training at long muscle links is at least as effective as full range of motion training which suggests range of motion per se doesn't matter all that much but there's something important about training at long muscle links for promoting hypertrophy so then the next question is basically why like why is that so much more effective um, And now we're getting closer to where the calf stretching study comes in. So a hypothesis that's been put forth to potentially explain why training at long muscle links is particularly effective for hypertrophy is the concept of stretch-mediated hypertrophy, which is essentially the idea that an active contractile stimulus, when also paired with a stretch stimulus uh, leads to more hypertrophy, you know, better intramuscular signaling that would lead downstream to hypertrophy, uh, than just that active contractile stimulus. Um, so that, that's basically the idea of stretch mediated hypertrophy. And we've, we've, I think reached a point in some segments of the fitness industry where that's already accepted as fact. Like, uh, Partial range of motion at long muscle links is really effective for hypertrophy, and full range of motion training is really effective for hypertrophy because of stretch-mediated hypertrophy, and we know that's the mechanism driving it. The thing is, we're not there yet. Uh, that is still a hypothesis that hasn't been fully proven, and the the evidentiary basis for it—like, there, there's certainly a theoretical argument you can make for it Um You know, if you wanted to make an argument about total tension on the muscle, presupposing that all hypertrophy just comes down to mechanical tension, and you look at maybe increases in passive tension as muscle links increase, and you say, oh, well, the stretch-mediated hypertrophy, that's because at long muscle links, you can put more total tension on the muscle, bigger hypertrophy stimulus. That is certainly a logical train of thought, but if you are interested in approaching this from an empirical perspective n- like every discrete step in that train of, of logic it hasn't been fully proven and elucidated yet uh, so currently stretch media mediated hypertrophy is just a hypothesis and it was a hypothesis on somewhat tenuous ground from my perspective and the reason for that is most of the time, not all of the time, but most of the time, when you have a stimulus you know is effective for a particular outcome, so in this case, you know, resistance training, active muscular contractile tension. we know that's effective for hypertrophy. Uh, if you do something else to augment that, to make it even more effective, generally, the thing you're you're augmenting it with is also at least to some extent effective for hypertrophy in its own right. So a, a good analogy here would be protein intake. So you can't just force feed protein and get huge without resistance training. But we also know that independent of resistance training, protein intake does do a lot of nice things related to muscle protein balance. So, you know, without a resistance training stimulus, if you eat more protein, you might lose muscle a little bit slower without a training stimulus. Uh, and you know, I'm comparing like kind of normal to super low protein intakes there. Uh, we know that, that mechanistically, um, consuming enough leucine in a meal will trigger muscle protein synthesis. Like there, there are a lot of those little variables like that, where you can look at protein in isolation and be like, oh, this should do some nice things for muscle itself. So then when you pair adequate protein intake with a resistance training stimulus, that protein augments the resistance training response to give you better results than you would see otherwise. And so that that's what you tend to see for things that, that might augment training responses. And the thing with stretching is there wasn't great evidence that it did independently do much for hypertrophy outcomes, uh, it, at least in humans and with uh, any sort of reasonable stimulus. So there there were some chronic stretch studies in birds and cats and rodents back in the 80s and 90s, which basically found like if you put birds' wings under a weighted stretch for weeks at a time, it caused ridiculous amounts of hypertrophy and muscle hyperplasia. Um, But you know, like one, we're not birds. And two, that hadn't been independently observed in humans. And so if you if you want evidence, like indirect evidence, for the concept of stretch-mediated hypertrophy, it sure would be nice to have human evidence showing that stretching itself uh, posed a hypertrophy stimulus to the muscle. Um, and there had been some prior suggestions that stretching per se could result in hypertrophy. So Uh, The study there that people would most commonly cite was by Simpson and colleagues, uh, published I think in like 2015, 2016, where uh, subjects um, had one leg that they stretched for six weeks, one leg that they didn't stretch for six weeks. And the stretch was a loaded calf stretch on a leg press machine that they would hold for three minutes, five days per week. So three minutes per day, five days per week for six weeks uh, loaded calf stretching. And that study did report that, uh, that, that stretching intervention led to hypertrophy. But, uh, we'll, uh, again, if you're, if you're watching this on YouTube, we'll, we'll flash the results up on the screen comparing the stretched and non-stretched legs. And really it's not a slam dunk case. So the difference in, uh, in calf thickness Uh, in the stretched and unstretched legs was a little bit less than one centimeter at baseline and was ever so slightly more than one centimeter after the six-week intervention, um, which the the authors reported was a statistically significant result, P of 0.04, barely significant. It was the type of thing where uh, depending on your perspective, you could look at the study and be like, "Okay, this is some amount of confirmation that stretching is an independent hypertrophy stimulus." But if you wanted to be more skeptical, you could look at it and be like, "Okay, like i I want to see more. Like this this isn't super convincing stuff." Quick interjection here, yeah.
0: um, to prove that I'm paying attention. You you said a difference of one centimeter. Should that be a millimeter?
1: Oh yeah yeah point okay. point one centimeter. Yeah okay yeah, yeah my bad. Um, so yeah, it, it was, um, essentially there was a, a little bit of prior evidence that a stretching intervention might lead to hypertrophy in humans, but it was, I, I, I personally wanted to see more. Right. Um, so the, the study I'm talking about here from Warnicki, uh, was what I would term a, um, a a proof-of-concept study. So essentially with a proof-of-concept study, what you're trying to do is you think that an effect exists, and you try to stack the deck in your favor to greatly increase the odds of you actually observing that effect. So a a great example of kind of a whole area of research where there are a lot of of proof-of-concept studies is studies that are interested in looking at different recovery modalities. And the way those studies tend to work is they put people through a muscle damage protocol that far exceeds anything anyone would ever do in practice. So, you know, it might involve 75 maximal eccentric reps for a particular muscle group, which if you've never done that before, that's, I think, almost an Eighth Amendment violation. Like, it's it's rough. You're going to be fucked up from that. Um... But, you know, it's causing so much soreness, so much muscle damage, that if whatever recovery modality you're interested in, if it will improve recovery, that is the type of situation where there's so much to recover from that you will be able to observe that effect. If you just kind of put people through a more, quote-unquote, normal resistance training stimulus, where people would just recover in 48 hours just fine anyways— you know, even if the thing you're studying was very effective, you might not be able to observe that effect because you hadn't adequately stacked the deck in your favor. So I, I would call the the Warnicke study a proof of concept study for the potential impact of stretching on hypertrophy. So the the training intervention was more intense and longer lasting than I think most people would do on their own. So it was also a six-week intervention like the Simpson study. Uh, it involved daily stretching lasting for one hour a day. Much like the Simpson study, uh, subjects had one leg that was stretched, one leg that was unstretched. Uh, so each, each subject served as their own control. And essentially there was a calf stretching orthosis, uh, an orthotic device that you would put your foot in, and there were basically straps that you could pull to pull your toes up, pull your ankle into dorsiflexion. That's right, right? Yeah, yeah. I always forget dorsiflexion, plantarflexion. So yeah, you could pull your toes up to pull your ankle into dorsiflexion and essentially lock it in for an hour. Um, and subjects were instructed on a one to 10 pain scale to stretch to the point of an eight. And I doubt they actually got there, Um because like if, if 10 is the most severe pain a human could be in, an eight is probably like a broken bone. Um, and I don't think they were actually stretching to that intensity. It was probably more like a, a six, I would guess. But anyway, uh, put yourself in a, a pretty uncomfortable calf stretch and hold it for a full hour. And do that every day for six weeks. Uh, which, like I said, in a proof of concept study, that's that's more stretching than I think most people do for a particular muscle group. Um, but you know, it, it, this is the type of study where if stretching can cause an independent hypertrophy response, this is the type of study where we would see it. And if we do see hypertrophy in a study like that, that confirms that a stretch stimulus might be an independent hypertrophy stimulus, which would help make more sense for why stretch media stretch mediated hypertrophy might be a thing. like it it helps put that concept on firmer, Theoretical and, and evidentiary footing, uh, and essentially that's what they found. Uh, so over those six weeks of stretching, the stretch legs experienced an increase in uh, calf muscle thickness of about fifteen percent. So that's a that's a pretty notable increase compared to just two percent in the control legs. Uh, and also there was a good uh, a good population used for this study. So they weren't completely untrained subjects they were quote athletically active having performed two or more training sessions per week in a gym or a team sport continuously for the previous 6 months so you know once again it's not like the the type of thing where with completely untrained folks uh ah, you know anything might be a hypertrophy stimulus like we're we're seeing uh calf growth just from stretching in folks who are at least like recreationally trained um so Overall, I I think this is is pretty promising. Uh, Like I said, the main takeaway of this study, I think, is that it puts the idea of stretch-mediated hypertrophy on firmer theoretical and conceptual footing. Uh, And like I said, kind of in tracing the progress of science in this area over time, we started with the observation that full range of motion training led to more growth than partial range of motion training. The next question is, why is that? Is it total range of motion? or is it the range of motion being trained? Then more recently, we had studies saying, hey, it's probably the range of motion being trained. Uh, the the fact that you're training through long muscle links, that seems to be more important than total range of motion per se. And then the next question is, well, why is training at long muscle links particularly effective? Might it be this idea of stretch-mediated mediated hypertrophy? Well, if it is, It sure would be nice to see that stretching, per se, uh, was an independent hypertrophy stimulus, which would help it make sense for why it might augment regular resistance training-induced hypertrophy. Um, So, essentially, that's where we're at now. And then the next question is, what can we do with that? Uh, You know, can we use this information to make kind of normal resistance training interventions more effective? Uh, you know, and it, it could be that we're a few years away from a breakthrough where we find out, hey, maybe full range of motion training is, you know, certainly effective, but maybe partial range of motion training at long muscle lengths is even more effective. So, you know, maybe maybe the bros were right. The idea of constant tension training, not locking out your reps, that they may have been on to something. Like, that may lead to more growth than just kind of standard full range of motion training, uh, we have yet to see and, and fully confirm that, but you know, that's sort of the next steps to take after a study like this. And one thing I will note is even though I would term this, uh, a, a proof of concept study, the, the type of thing where most people probably wouldn't do themselves, you could actually do this. So if you're really struggling with calf growth and maybe you're insecure about your small calves, uh, or, you know, if you just want to, um, you know, maybe maybe do Omar Esoff a solid. Send this to him. Um, th- this is the type of thing where you, you could actually implement this intervention. So th- they were just stretching one calf. You could do this with both. Just get some orthoses. Uh, and if you're sitting for an hour a day at work, uh, playing video games, watching TV you could just put your foot in that orthosis get it in a stretch and just chill out for an hour um i don't know how many people will want to do that but that this is theoretically a practical intervention someone could try to boost their calf growth but but for the most part it, it is mainly a, a proof of concept study um so yeah like that's that's mostly what i wanted to talk about the the point that i wanted to make clear um is that by talking about this study on the podcast, posting about it on Instagram, um, I'm certainly not saying that stretching is more effective than lifting for muscle growth. And I'm not saying that you should try, like just stop training your calves and only stretch them to promote muscle growth. That's certainly not what they're saying. Uh, This is more about trying to figure out why something works. And in this case, trying to figure out Precisely why full range of motion training tends to be more effective than short muscle length partials, why partials at long muscle lengths seem to be particularly effective uh, for muscle growth, whether the whole concept of stretch mediated hypertrophy holds water in the first place. You know, it very well could be that training at longer muscle lengths does lead to more hypertrophy due to some mechanism other than the stretch stimulus. Like, that's certainly still on the table. So this study uh, helps helps confirm that the stretch stimulus very well could be augmenting the normal kind of resistance training hypertrophy response. Um, And also I'll note that this is also the type of study that could potentially be useful for clinical populations. So one of the issues, if someone, say, comes down with a really bad disease, gets hurt really bad, and they're on bed rest for a few weeks. One of the issues you run into with recovery there is if if you're on bed rest and you can't move around at all, people just hemorrhage muscle and strength to the tune of losing strength at a at a clip of about one percent per day and muscle size at about half a percent per day. So you know if you're on bed rest for a month uh you you're in rough shape when you come back, and so just for getting getting back up and reconditioning yourself just for day-to-day life like that that uh can cause issues like just the muscle and strength loss and so if if it could be that just intensely stretching a muscle for an hour a day if that's effective not even as a hypertrophy stimulus but just for maintenance of muscle mass in those sorts of situations um you know it, it could be a an efficacious intervention that that people could do in situations where they can't resistance train. Um, so it, it's also useful from that perspective. But yeah, for for the most part, I, I wanted to talk about this to mainly just trace the the story of scientific discovery, because most people really do just want to be told, OK, well, that's cool and all. But like, how do I train to get fucking huge and strong and jacked? but ultimately, this is the stuff leading to that stuff. Um, there's almost always this process of progressive discovery. You make an observation, you try to explain that observation, uh, and then the next answer leads to another set of questions. Um, and, you know, it, it is that that incremental uh, process. And since, uh, since range of motion and the concept of stretch me mediated hyper are I think kind of hot in the fitness industry right now, I think it's worth, I, I thought it was worth kind of taking a step back and tracing how we got here and how you might go about answering questions to more fully elucidate why these things seem to work.
0: Yeah. Th- this brought up a lot of flashbacks for me, mm-hmm. um, the worst feedback the most criticism i've ever gotten for an instagram post mm-hmm. was also a kind of proof of concept study mm-hmm. and uh i swore that day if if i ever post again about a proof of concept study i'm going to have a disclaimer at the beginning middle and end of the post uh because i i think i caught a lot of that, yeah it was like a caffeine post and people mm-hmm. were like Eric, you are the stupidest person I've ever met <laughs> who would take nine milligrams per kilogram of caffeine. And it's like, well, if you want to see how caffeine works, that's one way to do it. Yeah. You know, and it's the same kind of thing with this. Like the utility extends far beyond the experimental design just from the uh, the proof of concept. Mm-hmm. But yeah, if you want to see, hey, can stretching a calf grow it? Like, yeah, throw them in the boot for an hour and see what happens. Yeah. You know, so it's It's very helpful to see why things like this are useful, even if you're not saying, hey, go home and replicate this this experimental protocol in its entirety. Absolutely. All right. Good stuff. Ready to move on? Yes, sir. So, Greg, let's talk a little bit about reverse dieting. Ooh, my favorite. So, a quick
1: question. What does reverse dieting do? Oh, man. Um... So, you know, I think it I think it's good for uh reversing metabolic damage, for building up my metabolic capacity, helping me maintain weight on a higher total calorie intake, helping me maintain a higher calorie intake the next time I cut so I can get leaner easier, stay leaner longer without much of an issue. Um Those are all of the things that I've been led to believe that it does, and I will be very disappointed if it it turns out that maybe it doesn't do some of those things.
0: Yeah, so with those claims, uh, of the volumes of research supporting all of them, do you recall a single study showing anything in that general ballpark?
1: You know, this isn't my area. (laughs) This isn't the type of research that I personally keep up to date with, but due to the volume of claims being made about it and the the confidence behind the claims being made about it i have to assume that there is a lot of high quality very strong data supporting it that would be I'll a, also be very disappointed if i find out that that's not the case
0: yeah that's a reasonable assumption but in this segment we're going to dig into it a little bit mm-hmm. okay so we're going to talk about reverse dieting we're going to talk about a lot of the claims that are made about it and digging into the evidence which um doesn't the, the evidence is far less exciting than a lot of the claims and hype surrounding reverse dieting. So we're going to dig into the details here but you know before I get into it I I want to kind of explain the backdrop here the history a little bit. So since about 2013 I have been chewing on a general set of related topics in my research, in my blog posts, uh, and just in my own life. Right. Mm -hmm. So one of the first things, uh, that got me interested in these topics was my own experiences as an athlete and as a coach, um, as a, a two sport professional athlete, much (laughs) like Bo Jackson. Uh, so the general set of topics is metabolic adaptation, weight regain after diets and both short-term and long-term weight regulation uh and it's not hard to figure out how i got there I, I used to be a wrestler transitioned into natural bodybuilding and there's this psych you know this cyclical process by which you get very very lean for a competition you regain weight you get very very lean again and there are so many physiological adaptations and perturbations that occur throughout that series of changes. So um, that's what got me into this in 2013. The first time I ever published about this set of concepts was 2014 uh, in the peer-reviewed literature. And uh, to the best of my knowledge, one of my papers was the first to actually use the term reverse dieting in the peer-reviewed literature. Mm -hmm. So this is a topic I've been following closely since that paper was that paper was published in 2014, was but was being written back in 2013.
1: So I've, I've been keeping my ear to the ground. Do Do you think? I mean, just for for the listeners, the viewers, uh, do you think that that might potentially be a source of bias, where you know you you might stand to benefit from uh, all of this research you're about to tell us about for how effective reverse dieting is. The fact that you are the the first person to talk about it in the literature. You know, all of this support for reverse dieting that you're about to tell us about kind of makes you look good in hindsight. So do you do you think you need to disclose that conflict of interest? So, yeah, the conflict of interest is that, uh, you know,
0: as a researcher, the only way for me to really benefit from reverse dieting is by asserting, oh, this definitely works, Mm -hmm. right? Like I was the first person that introduced this into the literature. I'm going to try to take credit for that. And that's going to make me look like someone who was really ahead of the curve in the research, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, another potential conflict of interest is, hey, we sell a diet app. We sell diet uh, you know, products and content, et cetera, whatever the case is. Uh, we're in this industry, right? So absolutely, it would be beneficial for us to say, hey, everyone's excited about reverse dieting. Let's make some cash. Let's yeah. profit off of that excitement. So the conflict of interest argument uh, would... On all accounts, say, Eric, it benefits you to say that reverse dieting absolutely lives up to the hype and is very, very worthwhile. Mm -hmm. Um, as we're going to get into though, I am unable (laughs) to, to make any such evidence-based claim that reverse dieting lives up to basically any of the hype that surrounds it. Wait, what? Yeah, I know. So
1: I need to strap in. Exactly.
0: So you'll want to take a seat. This is spooky. Uh, you know, you can leave the room if you need a minute to to gather your thoughts uh, and, and regain your composure. But I, I think it's best that we probably just dive into the evidence and, and kind of get into it. Let's so, do it. Um, you know, in recent years, reverse dieting's become really, really popular uh, in some areas of of the dieting world and the fitness world. Um, and what we want to do is basically figure out: Does it have supporting evidence? is it at least compatible with the most relevant evidence available and also are there potentially some more parsimonious explanations for the positive anecdotes that we see on social media there are a lot of people who say i've done reverse dieting and it worked great for me you should try it too but you know one of the foundational elements of science and by extension evidence-based practice is uh, a general preference for parsimony right so if there's a set of observations, uh, you know, we could say, oh, this is a completely novel thing that's never been discovered and we don't understand and it's never been seen in the literature yet, but the literature will keep up eventually mm-hmm. or catch up. Yeah, You know, we would much prefer to say, oh, I, I can very much explain that set of observations with a very tidy explanation that's based on fairly straightforward mathematical explanations and stuff we've already seen in the literature. Mm-hmm. Like, that would be preferable if both lend an equal amount of support for the topic, yeah. right? So uh, as you mentioned, reverse dieting often touted as a remedy for metabolic adaptation and as a strategy to facilitate easier and more
1: sustainable weight loss. Um, could could you uh, just hit us with a, a rough operational definition of metabolic adaptation, just for... for people who who haven't listened to the show before absolutely if this is your first time (laughs) listening to this show that you've
0: never heard of metabolic adaptation um so the general idea is we start dieting right we're restricting energy we're in a calorie deficit or negative energy balance which means that our daily energy expenditure is greater than our daily energy intake Mm -hmm. right so That helps us start losing weight. We're in this energy deficit or we're in negative energy balance. And as we're doing that, we start to lose fat tissue, Mm -hmm. right? And so metabolic adaptation describes uh, kind of an entire uh, cluster of adaptations that occur as a person continues on that weight loss trajectory. So their total energy expenditure goes down, which would be expected when you go from being a larger person to a smaller person you will burn fewer calories on a daily basis uh, with no adaptation required. You just have less
1: tissue. Yeah. If, if there's 20% less of me, it takes 20% less energy to to locomote myself around the world.
0: Right. Yeah. So, so we expect that energy expenditure should go down to some extent, but metabolic adap- adaptation describes uh, an adaptive reduction in energy expenditure. So Energy expenditure goes down more than we should have predicted based on the loss of tissue. Mm-hmm. And what's really happening is it's kind of like putting your phone on low battery mode, right? Where you basically tell your phone, like, hey, I haven't charged you in a while. Resources are tight. So, all the extra stuff you normally do in the background, let's try to get as efficient as possible and minimize energy usage, mm-hmm. right? So that's. In a very simplistic sense what's going on, we're conserving energy to essentially try to prevent further weight loss. Because if we let weight loss go on forever with no friction at all, we call that starvation in the biology business, right? So we have an interest in trying to introduce some friction there because our bodies can't tell that we're getting ready for a bodybuilding show. They think we're starving to death, you know? And so the hypothalamus is a key brain structure that is orchestrating metabolic adaptation, which involves not just a reduction in energy expenditure, but a lot of the unpleasant side effects that we associate with dieting. So if you look at the metabolic adaptation literature, there's clear parallels to what we call relative energy deficiency in sport or relative energy deficiency. And it's this whole cluster of things that happens when when energy availability gets low right so uh we might have low libido we might see that testosterone and thyroid hormone go down we might might be more lethargic more hungry Uh, it's just this entire set of adaptations that is all in response to acute and chronic restriction of energy the hypothalamus is dictating this and uh ultimately leptin is a key signal that is telling the hypothalamus, leptin being a hormone uh, that's produced in fat cells, leptin is relaying the signal to the hypothalamus. Energy is tight. You need to shut some things down. Mm -hmm. And very importantly, there are two things that cause pretty substantial perturbations in leptin levels. Number one would just be being in an energy deficit. So Mm -hmm. acute energy restriction reduces leptin. The second thing is the loss of fat tissue. So as fat cells start to shrink over time, they produce less leptin. So it's very clear uh, in all the the literature that being in an energy deficit independently contributes to metabolic adaptation and this reduction in energy expenditure, but also the loss of fat tissue over the long term also has an independent contribution. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's critically important. So the theory with reverse dieting is that basically increasing your calories very slowly and systematically and methodically can reverse metabolic adaptation and some of these other symptoms of dieting. So the idea is if you just start slowly increasing your calories, uh, your body will say, oh, there's some more energy here, enough for me to turn off low battery mode but not enough for me to decide to store any fat in the process or any appreciable amount of fat in the process. Mm-hmm. So a lot, of, a lot of folks use reverse dieting saying, well, I want to get back to how I used to feel before the diet. I want to get back to what my energy expenditure was before the diet because it's gone down a lot, but I don't want to regain much, if any, of the weight that was lost. Mm-hmm. Um, so, So the idea then would be that, these slow calorie increases are going to dramatically increase daily energy expenditure. They are going to be very carefully matched to your total daily energy expenditure as you go, such that you're able to ramp energy expenditure up and stop feeling so lethargic and get your hormone levels back to normal. And you're doing all of this stuff essentially in the absence of fat gain or with extremely minimal fat regain. Mm -hmm. That's the theory behind it. And so, it gives rise to a number of common claims. So people will say it fixes a damaged metabolic rate. Uh, People will say that, uh, you know, that metabolic adaptation is essentially making it almost impossible for you to lose any more weight. And you need a reverse diet so that you can become able again to even have the hope of losing more weight in the future, Mm -hmm. right? So there's a twofold claim there. One is that metabolic adaptation which is sometimes claimed as like starvation mode or metabolic damage. The first claim is that that is a completely insurmountable roadblock to further weight loss Mm -hmm. or just maintaining weight loss after your diet's done. The second part of the claim is that this is actually reversed and fixed by reverse dieting. Um, Along those lines, you'll see claims that reverse dieting will fix any of those hormone changes that, that occurred during weight loss in addition to ramping up metabolic rate. In some cases, people will take this a step further and not just say, oh, reverse dieting will get you back to your original total daily energy expenditure at this lower body weight. Some people will even say, forget about it. Whatever weight you're at, this is going to supercharge your metabolic rate such that your energy expenditure is higher than you've ever experienced in the past. Mm -hmm. Like You are going to tap into a physiological state that you have not previously reached in your life. Um, and." one of the biggest claims, one of the biggest selling points that you see among reverse dieting proponents is you're doing this to lay the foundation for a better future. You are supercharging and building up your metabolic rate and energy expenditure because that's going to make your next diet easier, or it's going to make it way easier to sustain weight loss in the long run. Mm -hmm. The idea being you're going to, you used to have to get down to 1700 calories a day, to effectively diet. Now you're only going to have to go down to 2,100 calories a day to effectively diet. Mm-hmm. And you're going to get just as lean in the same amount of time. Th- yeah. That's usually how it goes. So there's a lot of questions that come up here. In this segment, I'm going to try to concisely go through and answer those questions based on actual scientific evidence, not just like theorizing and anecdotes and stuff like that. Before I get into it, I want to acknowledge what I'm trying to do here is break down a 60 page article into like a
1: 20-ish minute segment, which I'm sure I'll go long on, so don't even check the timestamps. You're absolutely gonna go long, but I, I think this will still be audio visual gold. Yeah. So just, just take the time you need. Yeah, but but I do want to acknowledge if if you're hearing this and saying, Yeah,
0: that sounds like the cliff notes, but I want the real stuff. Um we are gonna have uh by the time this episode airs, the article should be live over Mm -hmm. at macrofactorapp.com, and like I said, it's like 60 pages in its current form, and it's going to provide all the references that you hear in this segment and provide even more detail. Uh, So if you're into that, be sure to check out the link in the show notes, Uh, and if you're wondering why the show notes don't have like 38 studies referenced, it's because I'm going to link to the article and say here's where they are, okay? Mm -hmm. So some questions that I want to address by looking at the evidence. Do metabolic rates get damaged? Because damaged is a pretty serious word. Mm -hmm. Damage seems to imply to me that there is effort required to fix, Mm -hmm. right? So do metabolic rates get damaged in a really substantial and persistent way? Do low metabolic rates play a major role in preventing weight loss or promoting weight regain? Does reverse dieting actually resolve the effects of metabolic adaptation? Does reverse dieting supercharge your metabolic rate, uh, especially after a diet? Uh, Does reverse dieting immediately after a weight loss phase prevent weight regain or facilitate a smoother transition into what we would call a maintenance phase, where you're just maintaining the weight loss that you achieved? Uh, Does reverse dieting make your next weight loss phase easier? Uh, and if reverse dieting doesn't fix metabolic adaptation, what should we actually do about it? Mm-hmm. So that kind of sets the stage for what we're going to talk about here. Uh, and with that, with that out of the way, uh, let's dig into some of the evidence here. So the first thing I want to address is metabolic adaptation versus metabolic damage, right? So metabolic adaptation, based on all the research that's been done, is a temporary state. And if you want to know how to reverse it, it's extremely easy to, to do that. And there's ample evidence showing metabolic adaptation being reversed. Uh, what it takes is twofold. The first step is getting out of an energy deficit. So going from negative energy balance to either neutral or positive. Mm-hmm. That, that eliminates the kind of immediate element that's driving metabolic adaptation. But there is that second element. Like I said, metabolic adaptation is being driven by an energy deficit and a loss of fat mass. So there's ample evidence that metabolic adaptation is very easily reversed. And what it takes is getting out of the energy deficit and regaining the fat that was lost. Um, And I know that that's not what a lot of people want to hear, uh, because you'd love to say, well, I wish the first part would take care of all of it. Uh, But based on the evidence, that doesn't seem to be the way that it works. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, it definitely looks like there's, uh, I'm going to show a figure here from a great review paper by DeLue, who's done a lot of really excellent work on weight regain after weight loss. And based on the evidence available, it's very clear that, uh, there there's, there's really four things going on with weight regain after a diet. Uh, so if you go from negative energy balance to neutral or positive, you are going to eliminate the non-specific part of adaptive thermogenesis, which is, which is in some ways anonymous with metabolic adaptation. It, adaptive thermogenesis is only looking at the energy expenditure component of, of metabolic adaptation. So, what we see is that in the weight regain process, getting out of a deficit immediately influences energy expenditure it doesn't fully restore it to baseline, it just moves it up a little bit to where it was at the end of the diet, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, And then there's clearly an impact where regaining fat is going to be part of the process for fully restoring energy expenditure to its initial level. But there's also two other important regulatory factors in, in the weight regain process. One pertains to energy partitioning. And what the research would indicate is that Until you get back up to a body fat percentage that is kind of similar-ish to where you started, you are going to preferentially regain fat rather than muscle. So it's not like this perfectly linear thing where you regain both at these completely similar rates. Usually what happens is you regain a lot of fat mass early in the weight regain process, and then lean mass starts to catch up much later. There's a preferential regain of fat at the beginning. Um, And another important thing is hyperphagia, which basically describes this really excessive level of hunger that we experience during especially very aggressive dieting. That hyperphagia doesn't seem to really chill out until you've regained all of the lean mass that you lost during the diet, right? So there's a very robust body of literature telling us, you know, what is dictating these things we experience during weight loss and what it takes to restore them. And uh, quite frankly, there's there's not a lot of room in this literature to suggest that reverse dieting offers you a path out that doesn't involve, you know, this process of restoring some fat mass and ultimately regaining a, a pretty decent amount of weight, both in the forms of fat mass and fat-free mass, mm-hmm. right? So metabolic adaptation, just to kind of put a bow on this part, uh, v- definitely a temporary state with various different drivers Uh, and full restoration of total daily energy, total daily energy expenditure is something that based on the evidence is is going to require,
1: uh, some degree of fat regain in the process. So so just to be clear, you're saying people can lose weight and they certainly can maintain weight loss. Like we're, we're not trying to play into the myth of all diets fail and everyone always regains the weight they lose. It's just, if you do lose a pretty substantial amount of weight and fat mass, you should anticipate over the pretty long term, uh, at least some degree of reduction in in metabolic rate and total daily energy expenditure, right? Yeah, yeah that would be correct. Um,
0: now, that, that leads me to an important point, though, which is that, we, you know, we've talked about some of these uh, drivers of metabolic adaptation and what it takes to fully reverse all elements of metabolic adaptation 100%. But a a really important question is: Are we sure that we actually need to fully avoid metabolic adaptation, even if it were possible, or completely reverse it? You know, how impactful is metabolic adaptation when it comes to weight loss and weight regain? Uh, so, I'm going to put some images on on the the screen if you're following along on YouTube. Uh, but there's been a, a really a, a series of studies here. So, there's a study by Martins and colleagues where they were looking at, okay, uh, how much does metabolic adaptation impact an individual's ability to actually lose weight during an intervention? What they found is participants lost about 14 kilograms on average. That's a substantial weight loss. That Mm -hmm. that was like 13% of their body weight. Uh, The typical uh, metabolic adaptation, as they quantified it, was about a 92-calorie reduction per day. Uh, And what they found was... Yes, people who experienced more metabolic adaptation did lose less weight over the course of this intervention, uh, but what they found was an increase in metabolic adaptation of 50 calories a day was associated with a a lower weight loss of only half a kilogram. Mm -hmm. And so just purely based on the numbers there is very clear to see that even the people who experienced pretty substantial metabolic adaptation You would still look at this and say you had a very successful weight loss diet here, you know, and
1: that just to put that number in perspective, the 92 calories that that's disproportionate reductions in resting metabolic rate, not total daily energy expenditure, right?
0: Disproportionate relative to predicted looking at resting energy expenditure.
1: So the, the, presumably the reductions in total daily energy expenditure were were probably larger, right? Yes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, But but what this is telling us is using uh, metabolic adaptation, looking at the resting metabolic rate component, basically just as a means of kind of sorting, okay, who was really experiencing it uh, versus who wasn't, you know, that's really the the utility there rather than quantifying the total impact Mm -hmm. in terms of calories per day. But what they're able to see is just like the folks who were experiencing more metabolic adaptation in this study still had very successful weight loss programs. It just... It, they just didn't lose quite as much during during the the program, right? Yeah. So it's not like they hit a brick wall. They just had a little bit more friction along the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also a study, a different study by Martins and colleagues, where they were looking at the time to reach a weight loss goal. And in this particular cohort, weight loss on average was 12 and a half kilograms. Uh, average weight loss time was 155 days. Again, they found that folks who experience more uh, metabolic adaptation, it did take them a little longer to get to their weight loss goal, but for each 10 calorie increase in metabolic adaptation, kilocalories per day, uh, the time to reach their weight loss goal increased by a single day, Mm -hmm. right? So when you're talking about that number and you're looking at, in this cohort, average metabolic adaptation was quantified as 46 calories per day. Again, the people experiencing metabolic adaptation were still you would, you would look at their progress and say, you are succeeding here. You are doing great. You might just need a little bit of extra time to get to where you're going.
1: Yeah. Right. It's like even in an extreme case, like if, if other people would need to diet for three months, even with pretty extreme metabolic adaptation, like you should, you should still be able to get the job done in four months.
0: Yeah. So, so what these studies are showing us is that with metabolic adaptation, even if you're experiencing it uh, much more than the average individual. You should still be, there's still a very clear path between you and your goal. It might just require slightly greater reductions in calorie intake or alternatively, just a slightly longer dieting timeline. Mm -hmm. This is friction. It's not an insurmountable roadblock, right? Uh, Another study by Martins and colleagues, this group has been doing a ton of work in this area over the last few years. Uh, they, They found that metabolic adaptation was not a substantial barrier when it comes to Uh, long-term maintenance of weight loss. So they actually looked at over a one to two year follow-up period. uh, Metabolic adaptation was found on average after weight loss, again, about in the 54 calorie per day range. Um, But this didn't really correlate with people's likelihood of regaining weight over the next two years. Uh, There are much more important predictors of weight regain That really have nothing to do with metabolic rate or metabolic adaptation it usually comes down to are you continuing to monitor your health related behaviors and your weight related behaviors are you continuing to track your food keeping your activity level up uh you know continuing to monitor body weight so that as it starts creeping up you can then address it before it gets you know starts to really accumulate Mm -hmm. uh so there are much more impactful predictors of weight regain than anything to do with metabolic uh metabolic rate Or metabolic adaptation Uh, and then there's also an interesting study by uh, father gill and colleagues they were looking at metabolic adaptation six years after the biggest loser competition which i resent almost everything about the biggest loser competition it's unsustainable it's it's not good Uh, but one of the silver linings is that there was good research done surrounding uh, the biggest loser uh, competition which if you're not familiar it was like a TV show with this extremely aggressive weight loss intervention. Um, and yeah, the intervention, like I said, I'm, I'm not really a huge fan of how it was done and how it was portrayed yeah. as a television program. But uh, nonetheless, there was some good research that came of it. Um, what they found was that after this 30-week intervention, the amount of metabolic adaptation that you experienced, and there was a, a tremendous magnitude in this study because of how extreme the intervention was. After the weight loss period, that metabolic adaptation didn't really correlate much at all with your likelihood of regaining weight. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, What they did find was that people who still had metabolic adaptation present at the six year follow-up were actually the people who very successfully prevented weight regain. So right after the diet, metabolic adaptation was not predictive of future weight regain. At the follow-up period metabolic adaptation was essentially a marker of success for reducing weight regain, because if you regain the weight, the metabolic adaptation goes away, Mm -hmm. as we've already kind of covered. Uh, So what this research shows us, you know, and and there's actually even uh, a better study, I would say, there's a study by Rimbach and colleagues that was published just this year as part of that huge doubly labeled water database. And we've been talking about, they've been cranking out really high impact
1: papers from that. Uh, just in terms of their utility, was that the same database that the the Ponser study about uh, metabolic rates across the lifespan, where where that came from?
0: Yes. Okay. Yeah. Cool, so cool. Th- that database and the projects surrounding it have really helped clarify a lot of things about metabolism and, and energy expenditure. And there was one recent paper that came out this year, and they were basically interested in figuring out like, is low total daily energy expenditure a risk factor for weight gain and, and similarly is high you know total daily energy expenditure is this actually protective against future weight gain like mm-hmm. what, what is looking at someone's energy expenditure tell us about their current body composition in terms of predictive utility and what is likely to happen in future weeks um, and, and what they found using gold standard measurement techniques is that uh, essentially looking at someone's total daily energy expenditure now um, doesn't really tell you a ton about what their body composition is likely to be. Mm -hmm. And looking at how their total daily energy expenditure changes over time, doesn't really tell you much about, you know, how, how their body composition is going to change. And actually what they found, some of their analyses were basically null findings and said, yeah, energy expenditure doesn't give us a lot of actionable information here. The, the only correlations they found were actually the opposite of what reverse dieting would imply. So looking at, uh, adjusted values for total daily energy expenditure, they found that higher and like increasing values for this adjusted total daily energy, energy expenditure value was actually correlated with weight gain over the time frame studied. So what they, I'll read the quote here, what they concluded, this su- suggests that low energy expenditure, total daily energy expenditure is not a risk factor for, uh, and high total daily energy expenditure is not protective against weight or body fat gain body fat gain over the time intervals tested. So basically this idea that you need to reverse diet so that you have this high energy expenditure that, you know, induces future weight loss or prevents weight regain after dieting, it doesn't seem to be compatible with what we're seeing here. And even just the the purpose statement of, well, you need reverse dieting because metabolic adaptation just slams the brakes on your weight loss. Um, again, we're we're not really seeing those types of claims supported by the literature.
1: Yeah. I, I think that um I think one thing that may be helpful just to like talk about and clarify is that I think it's I think it's very easy and tempting to test theoretical counterfactuals about yourself that did not in fact occur. Mm. And so by that I mean um So like, like personally, I have a relatively low rate of total daily energy expenditure relative to both my size and activity levels. Um, Like I'm eating like a little under 2000 calories per day to lose weight very gradually. And I'm, I'm like low 220s and relatively active. People hear that and they're like, that's, that's crazy. Like that seems way lower than it should be and it might be easy for me to look at that and say man if i had a higher rate of total daily energy expenditure it would be a lot easier for me to lose weight but the thing is like i don't know that uh and also like a, a lot of the difficulty comes from like how how the the hunger cues you have and how you respond to them yeah uh and people will hear like people who are smaller than me will hear Oh, you're under 2000 calories a day at your size? Man, if I had to go that low, I would be super hungry all the time. But the thing is like I'm not, like I I feel generally fine because to some degree to some degree like hunger responses are kind of tuned to how much energy you're actually expending. Yeah. And so if I was burning 500 more calories per day and eating 500 more calories per day, um if I look at that assuming that my feelings consuming 2500 calories per day in that situation would be the same as they currently feel now I'd be I'd be like oh that would make things so much easier but if I was burning 500 more calories per day I'd probably feel the same on 2500 calories as I currently do on 2000 yeah and so like those are those are counterfactuals that you can't test within an individual and it's it's always easy to think, Man, if I could if I could just eat more, this weight loss diet would be so much easier than it currently is. But if you were someone who could eat more, that would mean you were also burning more. And that might not actually make the process all that much easier.
0: Yeah, the the um that pairing between your intake and expenditure is much more impactful for how you're feeling in that process than just the raw absolute numbers of calories consumed. Yeah, for sure. Um, now, one of the things I want to get at here, so we've talked about how generally speaking energy expenditure just measured kind of randomly at baseline doesn't really seem to tell us much about like how lean you're likely to be or how your weight is likely to change over the next several weeks. Um, you know, nonetheless, I'm sure that a lot of people are still thinking, well, whatever, I'll take my chances. I want to do something that may supercharge my metabolic rate because I have faith That once I do my next diet, I'm going to feel way better dieting on higher calories. But built into that is the assumption that everyone experiences the same change when you go from your baseline starting calories to negative energy balance in a diet, right? So it's almost like everyone assumes, well, whoever starts the diet with 2,100 calories is going to be able to diet on higher calories than someone who starts the diet at 1,900 calories, right? Like it's it's all going to be this like perfectly linear transformation, right? Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, the literature casts an extreme amount of doubt on that. So there have been two recent studies, uh, one by Nunes and colleagues, one by Halstein and colleagues, and what they were interested in was looking at the concept of metabolic phenotypes, right? And so a phenotype is, broadly speaking, kind of like a set of observable characteristics. Uh, and in, in this case, we're talking about a set of observable characteristics that allow us to kind of group people based on how they react to energy, right? So mm-hmm. some people are very good at saving and conserving energy. And these people, when they diet, they experience large magnitudes, uh, magnitudes of metabolic adaptation so they start, they they get into an energy deficit, and their body is like, no, we're conserving energy, let's drop energy expenditure because of that drop in calorie intake. These folks are also good at conserving energy on the other side of the spectrum. If they start eating more calories, they very readily store fat, because that's the most efficient thing to do, energy-wise. There are also people on the other end of the spectrum who are spendthrift metabolic phenotypes. What that means is they're very uh, wasteful of energy. So when they start dieting and they get into negative energy balance, they don't experience such large metabolic adaptations. They don't experience big drop-offs in energy expenditure. But if you overfeed them, they ramp up energy expenditure very precipitously, Mm -hmm. very rapidly. And they're actually very resistant to fat gain. There have been interesting studies where they take people into the lab and say, Everyone's eating 40% more calories than they, they need for the next eight weeks, right? This huge amount of overfeeding, consistently, well controlled. And what they find is some people gain a ton of fat mass, and some people simply don't. Mm-hmm. Some of these spendthrift individuals just ramp up energy expenditure, and they resist that that weight gain. There's nothing mysterious about it. You can look at their energy and expenditure and say, "Well, that's that's where the calories went," you know. Yeah. But there's a clear difference.
1: Uh, yeah, they're, they're just sitting in their, their chair basically vibrating.
0: Yeah, yeah. So so there's, <laughs> there's no mystery involved here. Yeah. We can see some people are more likely to ramp up energy expenditure when overfed, and they resist fat gain. Other people, much more energy efficient. If you put in energy, they say, cool, I'll store it for later. Yeah. No big deal. Uh, now, the reason that this is important is because... Yeah,
1: all of the people who think it's cool to be able to easily diet down to the point where you have visible abs... That's cool and all, but I mean, when human society falls apart and we're all fighting over resources, it's people like me who are going to be on the top of the heap, and that's that's all I'm saying.
0: Yeah, th- that is very true. Yeah. Uh, be careful what you wish for, I suppose. Correct. Um, so with Nunes and Halstein, both of these studies were interested in looking at metabolic phenotypes, and so Halstein looked at acutely. You know, the people who experience large reductions in energy expenditure uh, during very short-term underfeeding and overfeeding. So, for example, if we just have you fast for a day, who has an enormous drop in energy expenditure and who has a much smaller drop in energy expenditure? Nunes and colleagues looked at it very differently and looked over a longer intervention who seems to be resisting fat loss versus who seems to be losing fat, uh, quite readily and, and very effectively, right? So the people who are clearly reducing energy expenditure and preserving fat, despite the fact that they're trying to lose it over time. So what's really cool about these studies is they, they look at different timescales, but they're still separating people into these thrifty and spendthrift groups. Uh, but here's what the results indicate. hmm In both cases, the people who were considered thrifty, uh, the people who are good at conserving energy, you would say, you would probably assume, well, at baseline, they probably already had low energy expenditure because these are just energy efficient folks. Mm -hmm. Not the case. Actually, the complete opposite of the case. In both instances, the evidence would suggest that people who experience the greatest amount of metabolic adaptation, and by extension, the people who... Experience smaller increases in energy expenditure when their calories go up, these people had higher energy expenditure at baseline
2: mm-hmm.
0: compared to the spendthrift uh, individuals. And so what this means is, and this is critically important and in my opinion, the one of the most important reasons that I am doubtful of reverse dieting.
1: But would you maybe say that they had high metabolic capacity at baseline but still experienced metabolic damage as soon as they got into a deficit exactly yeah
0: so even if you said i believe reverse dieting works as advertised literally uh the whole idea there is like oh well yeah ramp up your metabolic rate and that way that way when you start your diet energy expenditure will be higher and it'll be way easier next time around what the evidence tells us is that people who experience more considerable metabolic adaptation their energy expenditure is higher right before they start that diet. They already have that higher metabolic capacity. The issue is not that they're starting at the wrong number. The issue is that when they go into a deficit, they experience a larger drop. Mm -hmm. And there's absolutely, and I can't overstate this, no evidence to suggest that reverse dieting would change that in any way. Mm -hmm. There's no reason to believe that even if you built up your energy expenditure in the off season and said, okay, uh, I built up my energy expenditure. It's time to diet. If you're the kind of person who would actually need this intervention more than a spendthrift individual, there is no reason to believe that your energy expenditure is not going to drop the same exact way the moment you start that diet. We have no reason to believe that any buildup of metabolic capacity before the diet will carry forward at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, And another important part there, like I said, thrifty individuals... Uh, based on their research, experience smaller increases in energy expenditure as their increase in calorie intake. So what that means is, you know, the first part was we're granting, yes, as you ramp up energy intake, you're going to ramp up energy expenditure. So the first issue is, if you're someone who experiences a lot of metabolic adaptation, it's very, very doubtful that that would carry forward at all. But the second issue is before we even get there, Someone who experiences larger magnitudes of metabolic adaptation, a thrifty individual, is less likely to even be able to ramp up through deliberate overfeeding. Mm-hmm. So deliberately increasing calorie intake, as far as we can tell, the people who actually respond to that and would see meaningful increases in total daily energy expenditure are people who are spendthrift individuals. They don't even experience really substantial metabolic adaptation when they diet. And these are people who are, are naturally quite lean- because of their innate resistance to fat gain. Mm-hmm. And so what that tells us is, based on the evidence, the people who, quote unquote, need reverse dieting the most, assuming it actually did what it's supposed to, stand to benefit the least. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very unlikely that they're going to be able to ramp up energy expenditure through overfeeding. And even if they did, that probably doesn't matter, because once they get into a deficit, they are, based on the evidence, likely to experience a substantial drop in energy expenditure. Yeah. So, I know I'm running long, so for some of these parts, I'm going to kind of hit the details and again refer people to the full article for even more nuance and explanation. Uh, one art, uh, one piece of evidence I do want to acknowledge is a study by Longstrom and colleagues, which is one of the few that actually compares People after a bodybuilding competition who took a kind of reverse diety approach mm-hmm. versus people who just said whatever I'm going to regain weight pretty quickly here. Uh, and the reason I highlight this paper um, is essentially the analysis showed a very straightforward pattern. Uh, and this was a case uh, a case series, so this is not like uh, a randomized controlled trial. Uh, this is not um, the the type of thing where. You know, you're going to be able to make super, super uh, strong claims based on you know the the reverse diet versus alternative strategies were not strictly controlled by the research team and things like that. Um, but but basically, this was a, a study that I collaborated on with some really excellent researchers, looking at uh, physique athletes after a competition who are just doing what they what they think is best for themselves, mm-hmm. right? A very hands off approach. But the statistical analysis sh- showed some pretty straightforward patterns where the the folks who just let themselves regain some weight and some fat mass after the show, um, you know they they recovered quite well from all that stuff that we would kind of lump under that metabolic adaptation umbrella. So uh, the hormone changes, the the metabolic rate changes. those were expedited by just saying, you know what? I'm gonna go ahead and let myself regain some weight. Uh, the people who appeared to try to keep body weight pretty stable and just slowly ramp up calorie intake um, based on the measurements taken, it seems like that really interfered with the recovery of hormone levels and the recovery of metabolic rate. Uh, And so, without painting with too broad of a brush, uh, simply put in this study, which is the most direct evidence we have of something that would be called reverse dieting, it just really fell flat. It seemed to really Uh, delay recovery from an intense diet and essentially failed to deliver on a lot of those promises uh, by which it's marketed. This idea that, oh, no, it'll facilitate recovery, but you don't have to deal with all that unwanted fat gain. Uh, You know, these results directly oppose that concept and suggest that the reluctance to regain some weight in that process, uh, it it does, in fact, kind of stop some of that recovery in its tracks.
1: Yeah. Um, Now just what? just take your time C- cover everything you want to my segment ran long as well just you know what let's let's try to make this as as good and thorough of a piece of audio content as possible let's sure l- let's not rush it
0: yeah let's take our time then so at this point just kind of recapping metabolic adaptation exists mm-hmm. it's impermanent uh it does add some friction to the weight loss process but it does not make weight further weight loss impossible nor does it guarantee you're going to regain weight so that's really important second of all we can categorize people into these metabolic phenotypes based on who experiences more metabolic adaptation and who experiences less what we know from that research is that the folks who experience a lot of metabolic adaptation which again does add some friction in weight loss those folks actually tend to have higher energy expenditure at baseline before the weight loss diet begins. So the idea that they are struggling because they didn't build up their metabolic capacity is directly contradicted by the research available. The research available would also suggest that those folks, even if they wanted to increase calories to build up their metabolic rate, are actually least likely to be able to do that uh, because they... You know, people who have this thrifty phenotype do not experience these robust increases in energy expenditure when their energy intake starts to drift upward. Mm -hmm. So what that means is it doesn't look like building up metabolic capacity is the problem in the first place. It doesn't look like even if you did it, it would carry forward into the next dieting phase. It should basically just vanish immediately when you start dieting again. And it's very unlikely that the people who need it the most the people who experience the greatest metabolic adaptation would even be able to do it uh, because of that lack of increase in energy expenditure during overfeeding. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea that you can do this reverse dieting to get all the benefits of recovering from a previous weight loss diet without weight gain uh, or without considerable weight gain is actually directly contradicted by evidence and directly contradicted by the most relevant evidence that we have available Mm -hmm. Uh, of course a randomized controlled trial would be better but we have to go with the evidence that we have currently Uh, the next thing i want to address is kind of an extension of what i mentioned previously so we've talked a little bit about metabolic phenotypes and said well okay the people who uh would be most interested in building up metabolic capacity through reverse dieting first of all seem to have the least capacity to do it, uh, but also have uh, larger drops in energy expenditure when they shift to a diet anyway. Mm -hmm. But another thing that is important to ask yourself before that, uh, before you even get into phenotypes is, well, who is actually interested in this concept in the first place? Like, Mm -hmm. who are the people who are saying, I need the reverse diet because my I'm having troubles with weight loss and the way that I'm pursuing weight loss is unsustainable. It's usually people who are relatively predisposed to fat gain in the first place. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very rare that I hear someone who says, yeah, I'm naturally very lean. I have been all my life. uh,
1: But metabolic
0: adaptation is really holding me back here.
1: Yeah. Someone who can get in stage ready condition on like 2,400 calories per day they' They're not trying to reverse diet like they're they're in pretty good shape,
0: yeah, and so that brings me to another point, which is related to metabolic phenotypes in a way, but you know, what we find during controlled overfeeding studies is, like I said previously, some people do experience large increases in energy expenditure, and they very strongly resist fat gain. Uh, and I'll show an image on the screen that that demonstrates some of this data from Levine and colleagues. Uh, On the other hand, a lot of individuals experience minimal change in energy expenditure and they very readily and rapidly uh, gain fat. And so what that tells us is people who are likely to report a history of struggling with weight loss, uh, people who are likely to be pursuing weight loss goals in the first place, um, almost by definition are folks who probably don't have this, uh, in this context, this advantage Of being resistant to fat gain in the first place it kind of gives us an indicator that the people who are most interested in exploiting this concept of reverse dieting or utilizing it in their own uh, fitness journey they are probably not these individuals who are in the spendthrift phenotype who are resistant to fat gain in the first place so Mm -hmm. it puts us in a position where based on all the evidence we've covered so far the people who are most interested interested in using this, again, uh, this type of strategy, even if it worked, would be least accessible to those, individual, uh, those individuals. Um, now, moving on, there's one additional thing I want to mention here in terms of overfeeding. And that is the fact that a lot of these overfeeding studies are, are commonly used to support claims about reverse dieting. They mm-hmm. say, well, look, at the group level, you you put these people in this huge caloric surplus, and their energy expenditure goes up. Therefore, we're going to build up your metabolic rate in the off-season, right? As I've already covered, that interpretation fully ignores the concept of metabolic phenotypes, which is a major oversight. But an even bigger oversight is the fact that it treats just overfeeding from a natural body weight as if it's the same thing as increasing calories after weight loss. Yeah. So when we look at weight-reduced individuals, whether they lost their weight five years ago or five days ago, being in a weight-reduced state is a unique physiological state. Mm-hmm. So I mentioned previously all of these different factors that, that occur with, with weight regain. We talk about how there's an, an immediate response when you go from negative to neutral energy balance, right? But it, it's not very impactful. Until people get back to a somewhat similar body fat level in the weight regain process, there's ample, tremendous amounts of evidence to show that people preferentially regain fat. And they do that very, very efficiently. So the fact that you have previously lost weight, uh, especially if it happened recently, very dramatically influences your response to overfeeding. Mm -hmm. even if you were someone who might have experienced this adaptive increase in energy expenditure, doing that after a weight loss phase is exceedingly unlikely. What we see in virtually all of the weight regain literature is that if you have previously lost weight and you start ramping calories up, you will very efficiently regain fat mass. Uh, That has been shown many, many, many different times. Uh, and, And so, uh, I'll put that, I put that image up previously with the Duluth study where, where they uh, they highlight an entire body of literature indicating that weight regain is a kind of unique, being in a weight reduced state is a unique physiological state. Yeah. Overfeeding after a diet is extremely different physiologically than overfeeding from your natural body weight. And so this idea that we can just kind of slowly ramp up calories and for some reason Contrary to all the pre-existing evidence, your body is going to decide to burn those calories rather than storing. Uh, it just it just contradicts volumes of research mm-hmm. on weight regain.
1: Yeah, it, it reminds me of uh, I don't know how popular this still is, but maybe like three to five years ago, um, it, it was a popular idea put forth in in the bodybuilding community that after a bodybuilding competition you were as lean as you were ever going to get, so your, your insulin sensitivity was as high as it was ever going to get. There was going to be a huge nutrient partitioning advantage, uh, so if you started overfeeding from that point, you'd be able to gain a ton of muscle. And partially in support of that, people would cite a study by Forbes uh, based on overfeeding research showing that, in general, leaner people, without a resistance training stimulus, you just give them more calories, They gain weight, but a larger proportion of the weight they gain was lean mass versus people with more body fat. You overfeed them. A larger proportion of the weight they gain would be fat mass. And they just assumed that that would generalize. But the Forbes data was based on people who were in neutral energy balance, not in a weight-reduced state, and then overfed, versus, you know, bodybuilders, physique athletes after a show, very much in a weight-reduced state. And so people were putting forth this idea but all of the controlled research, all of the case studies on bodybuilders and physique athletes showed the exact opposite. Like, basically what you're saying. When they did overfeed to a large extent after a show, you know, you would see a bump in lean mass just from, you know, body water, glycogen resynthesis, etc., but mostly preferential fat gain. And I think that idea has lost some popularity in recent years. I I think just because it didn't play out in the real world like in in theory people thought it made sense not accounting for the fact that you know weight neutral and weight reduced individuals very different sets of of like physiological baselines there um and yeah like i i (laughs) think i basically think a, a lot of bodybuilders uh especially like natural bodybuilders tried to do that like oh i'm gonna get shredded and then i'm gonna put on like 10 pounds of muscle as i rebound from the show and like it just didn't work out for any of them. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, yeah, like I, I, I think the bodybuilding community has started to learn its lesson from that. But yeah, the, the basic principle extends to other populations as well.
0: Yeah. I mean, and and we see in in weight loss trials after weight loss is achieved, weight regain is very common, but it happens gradually over time. Uh, it, it seems hard to imagine that whether we're looking at a a randomized controlled trial in an obese population or we're looking at uh, a study in extremely lean physique athletes, I'm trying to find the instance where if you just go slow enough, like overfeeding just supercharges your metabolic rate and you for some reason don't regain fat. The weight reduced state makes us uh, very efficient at regaining fat and there's really no evidence to suggest that simply going slower is going to somehow rectify or circumvent that. Mm-hmm. And actually, that's a really nice transition to a a good example of that. So you mentioned previously proof-of-concept studies. Um, so you, you were talking previously about uh, calf stretching and muscle growth and how sometimes we look at a study that's the most extreme case just to say, okay, if this is ever going to work, it's going to work in this really extreme instance. And, yeah. and then we can refine it from there and see if it matters in practical day-to-day strategies, Mm -hmm. right? So, with that in mind, I'm going to lean on the Minnesota starvation experiment. And this was a very extreme experiment where uh, the the participants in the study got very, very, very lean. So, they demonstrated some of the largest magnitudes of metabolic adaptation that have ever been documented in well-controlled research. So if a strategy about attenuating or reversing metabolic adaptation was ever going to work, this was the study where it ought to work. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people say that they're going to use reverse dieting because for some reason, after weight loss, if you simply go slow enough with your increases in calories, uh, it will set you up for a smoother transition to your maintenance phase or attenuate weight regain as you're doing that transition. So people often talk about this experiment by Keys and colleagues, and they often talk about the metabolic adaptation c- component because it's flashy and it's the biggest numbers ever uh, observed, uh, to my knowledge. And it, it was kind of the the first time that people said, whoa, look at these crazy adaptations to weight loss. But there was a refeeding component, and there was a stratified refeeding component. So they put people uh, into these four different groups, T, G, L, and Z. And they basically said, okay, group Z, we're going to give you a much smaller kind of transition into this refeeding. So smaller and slower calorie increases, uh, group L, we're going to ramp you up faster. So bigger calorie increases more, more rapidly out of the gate. Group G was a little faster. Group T even faster. And what they looked at was there was this controlled 12-week overfeeding period and then a non-controlled overfeeding period after that where they said, okay, now do your thing and eat what you want, you know, which is how we all live our lives, right? So, you know, no, no one is like sitting there like, yeah, I just finished my diet and I'm waiting for some authority figure to deliver my meals for the day because... You know, all of my intake is perfectly controlled. At at the end of the day, real world scenarios, we're all left to our own devices there, right? But anyway, in this controlled overfeeding period, if you look at the rate of weight gain in that slow group, uh, they honestly didn't gain an appreciable appreciable amount of weight over the first six weeks of refeeding, Uh, which is remarkable because again, we're talking about people who were safely on the brink of starvation. I mean, mm-hmm. they were close, yeah. right? It was monitored, it was medically supervised, but these
1: people were shredded and they were not eating much. Yeah. Uh, and they were doing a lot of activity as well. Th- this this was before the declaration of Helsinki, right? Indeed. When, when you could still uh, get away with some shit and research that probably you shouldn't. Exactly.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, they basically stayed weight stable for the first six weeks of controlled overfeeding. It was a very gradual thing that I think you could argue is Relatively reminiscent of what people suggest reverse dieting ought to look like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so at the end of this 12-week period, they started out the first six, six weeks basically weight stable, and then it starts to creep up, and they, they've gained an appreciable amount of weight by week 12, but there's very clear gaps. The slower uh, refeeding groups regained less weight over 12 weeks than the faster refeeding groups, because of course they did. They that's how numbers work with with calorie surpluses, right? Yeah. The question is, well, what happens after they go to the ad libitum stage, where they're able to eat whatever they want, and it, you know, they're left to their own devices, much like we are in the real world. The slower groups just regained, like they completely closed the gap. Yeah, they they very promptly went right back to the same approximate body weight as the folks who just gained it earlier. Mm-hmm. And so, in this instance, in the most extreme application of metabolic adaptation, those short-term benefits of kind of slowing the process over the first 12 weeks, they yielded virtually no benefit that persisted beyond the next like couple months. Mm -hmm. Uh, Once they were back to ad libitum feeding, they very promptly basically caught up with the fat gain of the other groups. So the other groups kind of trended, they kind of tapered off um, as we would anticipate based on what we've talked about with fat mass dictating a lot of that process And the groups that took it slower, they just caught up Mm -hmm. and they caught up very quickly. Yeah. So what we're seeing here is that, as I've stated previously, the people who are most interested in reverse dieting, uh, even if it worked, it would be less accessible to them. But based on the literature, we really have no reason to believe that it should work or more importantly, that it does work. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's, It's not like there's evidence of this working and we just haven't figured out why. Yeah. We know why it shouldn't. And we have also seen that if it did, it's just not happening in any of the most well-controlled studies that are most relevant. Yeah. So it shouldn't work based on what we know and based on what we've observed. It doesn't appear to work. Yeah. And I, I certainly acknowledge that we haven't done a lot of direct study on controlled reverse dieting interventions, but at this point, it's almost hard to justify doing it. Yeah. Uh, there's just not enough of a of a kernel of optimism in the literature where you would say this is a worthwhile thing that we ought to do a huge randomized controlled trial on
1: that makes sense to me but here's who I'll, I'll do a little segue for you wow so with all of that being said it still seems like there are a lot of people who have tried reverse dieting and they they think it worked for them so what might be going on in those situations yeah
0: so I believe that there are four what I call illusions that make reverse dieting in the real world in practice seem more useful than it is. And before I get into it, I do want to acknowledge that uh what I'm doing here is not doubting the experience of people who have noted uh you know positive experiences here. Um you know it, it's really important to clarify I'm not saying that uh, you're you're lying or you're misinterpreting what 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 occurred um Well, I guess I am saying you're misinterpreting, but, uh, basically I'm not indicating that someone you're,
1: you're not grossly and maliciously misinterpreting,
0: right? Uh, Yeah. I'm not saying, oh, you're full of crap. I'm not saying, oh, you're foolish for being misled by these illusions. I'm arguing that there are things that occur during overfeeding that very are, they're very compelling illusions. If you were doing it, you would have every reason to believe what I'm doing right now is absolutely working as intended.
1: Yeah. yeah, You're, you're reaching incorrect, but, uh, very, very understandable, incorrect conclusions.
0: Absolutely. These are conclusions that I would not fault anyone for reaching or sharing with excitement. Right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, illusion number one pertains to simply just improved consistency of dietary tracking and improved adherence to one's dietary targets. So, If we look at the literature we'll see that registered dietitians who are i would say the most well-trained nutrition profession in the united states that's not really an arguable statement they they have the most hands-on direct training for what it's like you know in day-to-day dietary uh interventions or treatment programs right Mm -hmm. so very well-trained nutrition professionals they have about a 20 percent error in the research when when you say okay how much are you eating? And then you actually go verify how much they're eating. Like They have a 20% underestimation of their actual energy intake. Mm -hmm. And again, that's highly trained folks eating the stuff they normally eat, just trying to do their normal thing, not trying to do any changes with dynamic targets fluctuating, not trying to eat foods they're not used to. That's just like a baseline 20% underestimation. When we look at research and people who report a history of being unable to lose weight despite very low calorie intakes, we find that they, they often underestimate their calorie intake by about 50% while simultaneously overestimating their physical activity, again, by about 50%. Mm-hmm. So we know that it's very, very common and understandable for people to underestimate their intake when they are not watching it like a hawk, mm-hmm. right? And so you introduce an intervention like reverse dieting. And in many cases, you have people saying, well, the intervention here, the magic is that this week we're adding five grams of carbs to your diet Mm -hmm. or 10 grams of carbs to your diet. Necessarily, it insists upon a level of consistency and precision with tracking that, in my opinion, over the long term is unsustainable. But if nothing else makes you say, if I don't track every little trace of my diet, I might lose the entire intervention, Yeah. right? Like if being off by 10 grams turns it from an intervention to not an intervention, you must be perfect. Yeah. And so if we look at the magnitude of common underestimation, even in people who are doing a pretty damn good job with their tracking, it's not unreasonable to suggest that some people will find an extra few hundred calories when they start tracking with this level of precision. And what that means is someone will think back to their uh, previous time where they were at a similar body weight, and they say, you know, back then when I was like kind of loosely doing a pretty okay job tracking, back then I was maintaining this body at 2,200 calories a day, but now I'm maintaining a very similar body at 2,600 calories per day. So mm-hmm. my energy expenditure, I've, I've ramped it up 400 calories. It's very possible that in many cases you've simply identified the extra 400 calories that historically were not being consistently tracked, Mm -hmm. either because your day-to-day tracking had some error, or back then you didn't think twice about finishing the kids' leftovers just to avoid food waste, or back then you didn't really worry about the extra two beers on Saturday watching the football game. Mm -hmm. So we can find extra calories through extremely precise tracking that actually look very similar to the purported increase in energy expenditure with reverse dieting in some of these anecdotes yeah uh, illusion number two is that practically speaking a person's a person's maintenance calorie target is more like a range of targets mm-hmm. right so for example if your true total daily energy expenditure is 2200 calories a day And in this scenario, we're going to pretend it never changes. It's totally stable. So, eating twenty two hundred calories every single day should keep your body weight totally flat in this hypothetical. Yeah. If you were to drop it to twenty one hundred, you would be in a hundred calorie deficit. It would probably take you a pretty long time to figure out that you're actually losing weight, Mm -hmm. right? So you're in a hundred calorie. You're eating a hundred calories below your actual maintenance level, but like if you just crunch the numbers it should take you over three months to lose a kilogram. Mm-hmm. And then you factor in the fact that every day our body weight is constantly bouncing up and down because of water and sodium and glycogen and all that crap and and the bulk content in our GI tract. So basically what I'm implying here is that for a lot of people, it might be hard without like some kind of nice weight-trending software and without very diligent tracking it might be really hard if you have a total daily energy expenditure of 2,200 calories a day to actually know with any degree of certainty that if you're eating 2,000 calories per day, you're actually in a deficit. Or if you're eating 2,400 calories per day, you're actually in a surplus. Mm-hmm. It could take you literally months to figure that out and well, for and it to it, become
1: apparent. And that's assuming that your your maintenance uh, energy expenditure is perfectly static. Correct, because I mean there there is like an actual range on top of that. Yes, like you know your your maintenance range might be twenty one to twenty three hundred calories. So if you go down to twenty one, you are still at maintenance. Like your your NEAT goes down a little bit. You're eh, at that level. It probably wouldn't actually be reductions in resting energy expenditure. But you know you like NEAT can adapt two hundred calories like pretty easily. Yeah. Um. So yeah. Like in 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 that case. You know, maybe you were maintaining at two thousand or like twenty one hundred before, and now you get up to twenty three hundred and it's like oh i I built my metabolic capacity no like both both of those were already maintenance calorie intakes in the first place. You just kind of found the top of that range yeah which which might be nice. But it's, yeah. it's not a, a unique adaptation.
0: Correct. And so for a lot of people, I, I do wonder to what extent some of these positive anecdotes of, of reverse dieting are people who didn't really recognize that they were either at the bottom of that range or even in a small deficit. And, you know, they're just like, oh, yeah, I guess I'm maintaining weight approximately at 2000 calories. Mm-hmm. And then they don't really realize that they're in a slight caloric surplus when they're at 2400 calories. And they say, whoa. I just increase my energy expenditure 400 calories a day mm-hmm. and we can explain that uh pretty concisely without any physiological adaptations needed. Yeah. Uh the third illusion that I that I referred to in my article is that calorie intake we view it instantaneously, right? So when when we bump our calories to 3000 a day, we say I eat 3000 calories per day. And we don't really think about well, what was my kind of trajectory of calorie intake over the last six months or over the last 12 months, right? So we we talk about calorie intake in an instant instantaneous way, but body weight change and body composition change is cumulative in nature, Mm -hmm. right? So for example, let's say hypothetically, you finish a diet, you accomplish your weight loss goal. At the end of the diet, your energy expenditure every day is 2,600 calories a day. And you decide, okay, I'm just going to do a maintenance phase and keep my intake at 2,600 calories. 16 weeks later, still taking in 2,600 calories, you still weigh the same. Mm -hmm. Again, it's an oversimplification that implies that everything's static and never changes, but but that's where we're at. Now, let's say that you finish your diet and your energy expenditure is still 2,600 calories per day, but you ended the diet consuming... 2,225 calories a day, mm-hmm. right? So you're in, a de- you're in a deficit. That makes sense because you're losing weight, right? So instead of just jumping to 2,600, you say, I'm actually going to slowly build this up over time, right? And so very linearly in a stepwise manner, every week you make a change and you build up from 20, 2,225 up to 2,975 mm-hmm. calories per day. So you just keep ramping it up. At the end of that 16-week period, making a change at the beginning of each week, building up to 2,975, you're thinking, whoa, when I compare this to the alternative, I've built up my metabolic rate by almost 400 calories. I'm maintaining the same weight, but instead of eating 2,600 calories per day, I'm eating 2,975. The reality is that both of those strategies have the same cumulative energy balance. Mm -hmm. Because during the first part of that reverse diet, you were still in a fairly substantial calorie deficit. You didn't actually get into neutral energy balance until about halfway through it. And then, you know, the other half, you know, when you're looking at that intake of 29.75, you are in a small surplus, but you just got there. Mm-hmm. And so you have not had time to accumulate that body fat. So it's an illusion by which, instead of just jumping to maintenance, if we ramp it up over 16 weeks, it looks like we've built up metabolic capacity by 400 calories per day. But we can fully explain that with math that requires no increase in energy expenditure whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Those are two mathematically equivalent approaches in terms of the cumulative amount of energy that would be stored. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Now, we can look at another example where let's say instead of trying to maintain, you say, whatever, I'm cool with a little bit of weight gain, right? So you finish your diet, uh, total energy expenditure is 2,600 calories per day. And so you decide, I'm just going to bump up to 29.75 right out of the gate. So the last example, that's what you built up to. In this case, you say, whatever, I'm fine with a little a little bit of weight regain. I'm going to bump up 29.75 every day, 16 weeks. Eventually, you have a positive energy balance over time of 42,000 calories yeah. of extra calories coming in. Now, in a different scenario, you can start at the same place and say, I'm going to start at two. 2,225, just like I did in the last reverse dieting example, but I'm going to ramp up very aggressively. The change I make every week is going to be twice as big. At the end of this 16-week period, I'm going to ramp all the way up to to 3,725 calories. We're talking about over 3,700 calories a day. That is a massive calorie intake for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So, If you take that approach instead and you work up from 2,225 up to 3,725, you still have a cumulative energy balance of 42,000 calories per day. So these two approaches, jumping straight to 2,975 or working up to 3,725, the cumulative impact on on energy balance is the same. So one person would look back and say, yeah, I gained some weight, but... uh, I'm only eating 2,975 calories a day. The other person would say, well, I've gained the same amount of weight, but I'm eating 3,700. Like I've clearly built up my metabolic capacity by 800 calories. Mm -hmm. That's not the case. When we look at these short timescales and these fixed timescales, we find that ramping your way up can create this illusion that your energy expenditure has dramatically changed. In the short term, it's difficult to see that. But if people continue this, you know, so in this example, you know, the one person keeps eating 2975, the other person continues building or stays at 3,700 calories a day. Over time, those body composition differences are going to become very substantial and very apparent. Mm -hmm. And the reason that's important is because I often see anecdotes of people saying, you know, I've been doing this reverse dieting and I'm just amazed at how lean I am at my current calorie intake, and it's almost always people who have been ramping up their calories over the last month or two. Mm -hmm. It's very rarely someone who says, yeah, this is crazy. I've been doing very meticulous tracking my entire fitness journey, and now for very long timescales, I just eat a 1,000 calories more than I used to. Mm -hmm. It's way more rare to see that, and it's exceedingly more rare to see people say, yeah, I did this in the off season, and now that I'm dieting, it's a breeze. Because mm-hmm. again, a lot of times that initial inflation of energy intake is actually more of an illusion than anything. Mm-hmm. And any metabolic changes that actually do occur during that time period probably go away the moment you start dieting.
1: Yeah, or I mean, to to the extent where it's not an illusion, like, and this is something we've talked about off mic before, but like, I I think. Um, I do think reverse dieting can work, not necessarily for the reasons that are advertised, but as kind of a trick to convince people to actually be in a caloric surplus for once. Yeah. Uh, like like people who are trying to be super lean all the time, they're chronic dieters, and they they've never really given themselves... A, a long-ish term energy surplus to actually like build some muscle and be able to train hard and not be super fatigued like if you can convince them oh yeah ramp up your calories gradually you're not going to gain much fat which if you told them on the front end like oh yeah you totally are they wouldn't listen to you in the first place right so, so you you can kind of trick them into actually getting into a surplus for a while building muscle and then, yeah, maybe their next diet does go better, and maybe their energy expenditure is a little bit higher at the end of the diet. But it's not necessarily because they "quote unquote" built up their metabolic capacity due to the reverse diet itself. You just you just finally tricked them to get into a surplus for the first time in five years, right? And uh, you know the 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 ability to to build muscle and train hard from getting in that surplus. Uh, was the thing that helped them in their subsequent weight loss phase
0: yeah and another thing you know like we mentioned previously it it kind of tricks people into saying well we're going to do even if it's not a surplus if you say well we're going to do a maintenance phase but you're actually going to really meticulously track a lot of people very understandably so during a maintenance phase they say oh cool like this is a time i'll just make sure body weight's pretty stable uh you know when it starts drifting up i'll tighten things up if it starts drifting down i'll tighten things up and kind of course correct and keep body weight stable um but in that in that context the maintenance phase works fine but people often often underestimate their actual calorie intake during the maintenance phase Mm -hmm. for a lot of people it's the first time that they've committed to a long maintenance phase and actually gotten a very good accurate quantification of how many calories they eat during a maintenance phase yeah so yeah that's definitely part of it uh And then the final thing I want to mention here is an illusion that involves an inversion of cause and effect. Because, you know, I mentioned previously that when someone after a weight loss diet goes from an energy deficit to energy balance, there are real things that happen. Like maintenance phases have physiological impacts. You know, we we do see a small partial restoration of total daily energy expenditure. For a lot of folks, we do see a partial or full attenuation of some of those symptoms of relative energy deficiency. Mm-hmm. And in some people, this can create subje- subjective improvements in quality of life and just how they feel that have really important impacts on their activity level, the way that they train. Like going from a deficit to a maintenance is a real intervention that does real physiological changes. And most importantly, those have been documented. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We can look at the research and say, what happens when a a person who's been dieting goes to maintenance? We can look at actual evidence and say how it affects how they feel, their energy expenditure, the way they train, their activity level. Those are real things that the physiology literature fully accounts for.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: One thing that we cannot look at the literature for is saying, well, but then what happens if I increase my carbs by 10 grams every day? Yeah, Uh, There's no evidence to suggest that that's a physiological relevant intervention that would do anything other than eventually, if you do it long enough, induce some extra weight gain, mm-hmm. right? And so when I talk about cause and effect, the reason this comes up is because a lot of times people frame reverse dieting as, well, I was at neutral energy balance, right? At my low crappy post diet energy expenditure. But when I bumped my carbs up 10 grams, my body decided For some reason, contrary to everything we know about weight regain and post-diet fat storage, I am instead going to ramp up my energy expenditure to match that. Mm -hmm. Why? I literally have no idea. Yeah. But I'm going to do that. And then that happens. And then you increase your carbs 10 grams again. And your body says, again, I have no regard for the weight regain literature. I'm going to do a thing that's never actually really been observed and bump up again Mm -hmm. and match that. And for some reason, this weight-reduced body has decided, this is my my permanent body weight, and if you keep ramping up calories, I promise to keep increasing energy expenditure to match it. That's never been observed, and nothing close to it has been observed.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, but what has been observed is that when you go from a deficit to maintenance, energy expenditure does increase a little bit. And so what I posit in this article is that Reverse dieting is the effect of establishing neutral energy balance. It is not the cause that is ramping up energy expenditure. So rather than saying because I increased my carbs 10 grams, my body is elevating my energy expenditure, I think it works the other way around. I think it's, I was dieting, right? And so my energy sp- expenditure was suppressed. When I went from negative to neutral energy balance, all of a sudden, All of a sudden, I'm in what we would call a maintenance phase, you know, and I'm in neutral energy balance. And in response to that, my energy expenditure probably will go up a little bit, not all the way to where it started, but a little bit. And we have ample evidence to suggest that that happens. We're we're in the research again. We're not in the imaginary world, right? Mm -hmm. And so as a result, oh, wow, I, I jumped to maintenance and then my energy expenditure bumped up a little bit. And actually over time, because of that, it looks like my weight is actually starting to drop just a tiny bit, you know? And so because I have restored neutral energy balance, eventually I actually have the opportunity in the future to increase my carbs by 10 grams just to get back to neutral energy balance, right? So I started in this huge deficit. I closed that gap and then my energy expenditure creeps up a little bit, which has been observed. And so now I have to bump my, cal- my calories up a little bit just to stay in neutral energy balance. And so what I believe is happening, based on the evidence, is that reverse dieting is, this gradual increase in calories is enabled by getting back to approximately neutral energy balance instead of staying in the deficit. And so what we see is, yes, over time a person can gradually increase their calories a little bit by little bit by little bit and stay relatively weight neutral over that time period, but it's not because the the 10 grams of carbs are doing something special that's never been observed in the literature. It's because getting to approximately maintenance is doing something that absolutely has been observed in the literature. And so we're able to continue bumping calories up because we are keeping pace with an energy expenditure that is very subtly climbing because instead of being in this big prolonged deficit, we're doing our best to stay in approximately neutral energy balance. Mm-hmm. Uh And the analogy I draw on there is related to uh, uh, Brian Miner and Eric Helms. And I don't know if they had other authors on that paper. Um, They published a really insightful article about uh, basically how we view progressive overload with resistance training, right? And so um, we don't need a maximal training stimulus every workout to be able to make adaptation. We We just need the training stimulus to be good enough to impose more adaptation. And so they basically say, you know, you're not doing progressive overload. You're not causing it by adding five pounds on the bar. What's happening is you're giving an adequate training stimulus. You're getting stronger and you're adding five pounds on the bar to make sure that the the training stimulus continues to be adequate. So mm-hmm. you're adding pounds on the bar because you're getting stronger versus every little minute change in training load making this enormous difference in terms of your progression over time. Yeah. So I I think it's an
1: analogous... Just to to state that another way. Yeah. Adding five more pounds to the bar doesn't force you to get stronger. Yes. You're able to add five more pounds to the bar because you have already gotten stronger. Exactly. Yeah.
0: And in an analogous way, 10 grams of carbs is not forcing your energy expenditure upward to a meaningful degree. You are able to add in an additional 10 grams because you have been... Instead of being in a, de- in a deficit, you have gotten close to to you know approximately neutral energy balance, and your energy expenditure is responding in kind. Mm-hmm. So uh, those are the four illusions that I think are contributing to why we see so many of these positive anecdotes. And again, they are compelling, they are convincing, and I do not fault anyone for for saying, "Wow, this this really looks like it's doing something." As I mentioned, simply being in maintenance does real physiological things compared to being in a deficit. So I'm not even saying that nothing's happening during reverse dieting, but what I am saying is that reverse dieting in most applications uh, is really just a more stressful mechanism of getting into a maintenance phase or getting into neutral energy balance, which does actually do things, right? So people might experience positive things during a reverse diet. But the only positive uh, physiological things going on that have that would make sense in a reverse diet would also be absolutely accomplished by simply doing a maintenance phase. Mm-hmm. Uh, and working up to it slowly doesn't really seem to add any benefit. Uh, if you have a good estimate of what your energy expenditure is at the end of a diet, you should be able to jump straight to it. Uh, and enjoy all of those benefits of neutral energy balance without delaying that process yeah. uh, and, and kind of saying, well, I'm going to stay in a deficit and just bump up 10 grams at a time until I get there. Right. Yeah. So, one of the, the things that people often ask um, on this topic is like, is there ever a reason to try reverse dieting? Mm-hmm. You know, and we own Macro Factor and for, all the reasons I just talked about for way too long, we don't have a reverse diet function because frankly, I, I, I don't think the evidence is there. I, I don't want to take users on this ride where they spin their wheels and have these really high expectations and ultimately end up disappointed. You know, it's, it's an evidence-based app and mm-hmm. and we want to make sure that we are providing all the best features that we can possibly provide that are also compatible with the evidence. Yeah. Right. Um, but people still ask, like, "Hey, um, you know, is there ever a reason to, to try reverse dieting?" Uh, one good reason is you're just curious and you want to try it. Yeah, there, there's nothing wrong with that. I, I, I don't lose sleep over the idea that someone out there is currently reverse dieting, right? So if you're really intrigued, you're really interested, absolutely, you're welcome to it. And we design Macro Factor in a way that enables that. You know, and we've got a, a thing on the knowledge, ba- the knowledge base that tells you how to do that. But basically, just setting an extremely slow weight gain goal, it just provides that little upward pressure on your calorie target, boom, you've done a reverse diet, but it, it's not some special feature that we're willing to advertise and say, hey, come check out this incredible new thing that defies physiology, mm-hmm. right? If you want to try to just set the, the lowest possible rate of weight gain and see if it nudges your calories upward, you know, by all means, if you're just interested, that's fine, Ah, uh, you can do it in macro factor or you can do it without macro factor. doesn't really matter. Yeah. Um, but I think the most justifiable scenario for why you might want to try reverse dieting is you just finished a fat loss phase and you'd like to maintain you know basically all of your weight loss in the long term. You're very adamant that you don't want to regain weight. Uh, your energy intake, your calorie target at the end of your diet, is a bit unsustainable for you. So you're like, okay, I want to maintain this physique exactly. I don't want to regain fat, but I don't think I can maintain this low calorie intake for a long time. Uh, But you also don't really know what your total daily energy expenditure is. You know what you've been eating, and you know that it's been promoting weight loss, but you're not really sure what your energy expenditure is. In that scenario, there is a possibility that just guessing your energy expenditure and therefore your target for calories in a maintenance phase, you could overestimate Mm -hmm. that energy expenditure and therefore the calorie target. Uh, And if it's a substantial overestimation, you might regain fat because like we've said, all the evidence suggests that if you recently lost weight, you are physiologically primed for some pretty efficient fat regain, Mm -hmm. right? So in that scenario, I do think it makes sense theoretically to say, Well, instead of making a guess that I don't feel good about, maybe I'll just slowly work up and test the waters. I'll keep those illusions previously mentioned in mind, and I'll try to settle on a maintenance phase that's going to work for the long term. Now, your energy expenditure might go up in the process as you get more from a deficit to neutral energy balance. Is that going to make your next diet easier? Probably not. You'll probably still experience metabolic adaptation next time around once you get back into a sizable energy deficit. But it basically, the concept of reverse dieting functions as a way to work toward a maintenance target when you're not certain of what it is likely to be and you're very adamant that you don't want to regain any fat. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I will also mention that one of the reasons we don't offer that feature in Macro Factor, aside from the lack of evidence and the excessive hype that comes with that term, is the fact that if you're using Macro Factor. The guesswork is gone. You know, we keep a very well-calculated running estimate of your total daily energy expenditure. So the moment you stop a diet, a weight loss diet, and switch to maintenance, we're not just guessing. You know, we we haven't we have empirical data to indicate what your most likely maintenance target is. Mm-hmm. We put you there, and then we have a, a dynamic uh, maintenance uh, approach where. If your energy expenditure does start creeping up because you've gone from a deficit to neutral energy balance, the app will pick up on that in your weight trend and it will increase your calorie target. So basically, again, the reverse dieting might occur, you know, in the sense that calories might creep up over time, but that's the effect of the maintenance phase, not something that is causing this previously unidentified physiological effect. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, um... I think that pretty much does it. I just want to wrap up with some practical applications. Uh, There's really no evidence to suggest that reverse dieting accomplishes anything more than a a fairly standard maintenance phase. Um, When it comes to metabolic adaptation, this is not something that stops weight loss in its tracks. It's not something that guarantees weight regain. And so what we should be trying to do is simply quantify it and account for it. Mm -hmm. So as you're dieting, it's nice to see how your expenditure is changing so that you can simply keep either making calorie adjustments to accommodate it or extend your weight loss timeline to accommodate it. Because both of those options should be effective based on the actual research in human beings losing weight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is really what we use to guide our the, the way we approach things in, in macro
1: factor. Or, or to or to use it as an indication to maybe try to increase activity levels. Yes, yeah, that that
0: is absolutely a, a, another way that you could uh, account for metabolic adaptation, but we're not trying to totally stifle it or circumvent it or fix it or anything like that because, you know, as we've talked about the the available evidence does not really leave wiggle room for the concept that reverse dieting is going to, you know, really effectively and robustly and persistently Reverse these things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if you're interested in reverse dieting, just because you're curious or because you want to transition to a long-term maintenance phase, and you don't know what your target should be, I do think it's justifiable. But for most cases, I think just a, a pretty simple maintenance phase should be should be good enough to get the job done there. And based on the evidence, a maintenance phase can be a really positive thing. But there's really no evidence of and Really no evidence supporting the theoretical concepts that reverse dieting should really be any more effective
1: than a maintenance phase. Well, based on where this segment started, uh, when you asked me what good things I thought reverse dieting would do for me personally, uh, I have to say that I'm very upset with how this segment went. You've dashed all of my hopes upon the rocks. Uh, But I will try to be strong and uh, adapt to this very unfortunate information that you're giving me.
0: Well, I I appreciate your resiliency uh, in the face of this bad news. Um, One closing comment that I want to reiterate. In this segment, I talked about how we approach these types of things in macro factor. uh, And the reason is we developed the app to accommodate challenges in, in you know, the process of trying to gain weight, lose weight, maintain weight, etc. So uh, it's really important to recognize you can take all this information and use it and never spend a cent on macro factor. And that's fine. You don't need macro factor to apply any of this information. Um, and, and yeah, like I like like we said previously, uh, the the purpose here was not to sell you on macro factor. It was just to kind of Readjust the public perception of reverse dieting because it seems to have just taken on a life of its own and gotten so far from the evidence that we we really do need to rein it back in a little bit. Um, yeah, so uh, there there's uh, you don't need macro factor to make any of this information useful. And as we mentioned previously, my only conflicts of interest would lead me to say actually, reverse dieting very effective. In fact, find the first study that ever mentioned it. It's mine. I'm a visionary, and also let's throw it in the app and market it and make a bunch of money off of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we haven't done that. And uh, to be very, <laughs> to be very honest, it would have been way quicker and easier to just put it in the app than to write the sixty-page article explaining why it's not in the app. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it, it's just we don't believe in it. You know, and, and so that that's why we don't have it. Yeah, uh, but. I will say if the evidence comes around and I have to eat my words and say actually 2014 Eric was way smarter than 2022
1: Eric we can
0: always put it in.
1: Well, I mean if anything it's more grotesque than that because initially you put forth the idea of reverse dieting. I, and to be clear, I didn't make it up. I was the first person to mention it yeah, in yeah. a peer-reviewed paper. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, you did that and now in this article you are you're publicly eating crow. But to extend the metaphor, you're going to have to figure out how to regurgitate the crow and bring it back to life. Dr. Frankenstein style. Yeah. Um, and if, you know, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. Yeah.
0: I'll put together a narrative about like, you know what? You gotta, you gotta stick to your guns. I let the haters get in my head. (laughs) I let them convince me that I, I wasn't actually a beautiful genius, but indeed I am. So we'll go back. Yeah. Um, all right, so I think that does it for our first episode back. Um, this new format where we have these very very concise tiny segments that that are very short and don't go for like literally an hour.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: <laughs> we're just we're just absolute failures. Can we acknowledge that? Every time we make a change to the show, we're like, "Oh, this is going to be shorter and it's going
1: to be fantastic." And it, get, it just gets longer. Well, oh, so in in your defense, you had a lot of information to cover. I didn't. I I think I still ran like forty five minutes. So oh god, I'm looking at the timer.
0: It's two and a half hours. Yeah,
1: you 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 get a pass on this one. I Jeez. I don't think I do.
0: All right. Um. Well, the good news is I think it was good content.
1: So I think, I think it was. I had fun.
0: Yeah. Um. So hopefully at least three or four people find it to be useful and are willing to go through this monster of an episode. But um. It's great to be back. Thanks so much for joining us on this new season of the Stronger by Science podcast. Like I said, if you're interested in that reverse dieting article, it will be published probably by the time this, this podcast goes live. Mm-hmm. Check the show notes for the link. If you're thinking, would it have been quicker for Eric to just read the article word for word uh, rather than present a segment on it? Actually, no. It's a long article. Uh, you should check it out. There's some extra detail in there and a ton of references. So yes, uh, S-
1: spoken word is about 100 words per minute, at least for, for English speakers um, speaking at like a normal speaking cadence. The article is close to 15,000 words long. So yeah. just reading the article aloud would have taken about two and a half hours. Uh, and then you, you got to tax some extra on that for like explaining figures and characters. To, yeah the people who are just listening. So even if that one segment ran us about an hour and a half here, you're still saving. It's it's still a net time saving over just reading the article aloud.
0: Well, there you go. That's what we do here. We just aim to save everyone time and give the most concise bits of information necessary. <laughs> um, but yeah, once again, thanks so much for joining us on this new season. Uh, we are going to have a little reshuffling in the publishing uh Uh, schedule, but we're recording every week. Things are going to be trickling onto the YouTube channel and all of our podcast feeds in the weeks that follow. So we will be back very soon.
3: Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening. And we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.